Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Better Be Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 113th episode of the Nauticast titled Family Duty Honor. An analysis of a Clash of Kings, Catelyn Five, in which Brienne swears her sword in service to Catelyn. Edmure then prepares to give Tywin battle at the Fords, and Ned's bones swing by on their way home. Man, I think all of these subplots are going to go just fine for our protagonists, right? It's just like a basket of happy endings dropped off at your door. What could be better? I can't imagine anything being better than another Catelyn <laughs> chapter. Oh, God, I'm so excited Absolutely. for this chapter. Agreed oh. there. Oh, my goodness. And as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council patrons, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester, Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised. The High Bearded Priest. Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King. Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne. Kelly, Ward of the East, and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs. Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamas, Lord Carlos. Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God. The King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli. Sir Sorcedelica. Prince Matthew Faust Targaryen, Proud, Soyboy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons. Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms. Lord Penchant for Nostalgia. Queer Alex, Rainbow, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems. Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Holdover, the waiter for T.W.O.W., a.a. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneras of House Colgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Shomal the Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Thulgus, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North. Surveyor, Chief of the Parties in the Frozen Wastes. Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse. The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows. Marshall Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Crave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Whore of Harrenhal. Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, who again has rejoined the Small Council after a voyage across the Narrow Sea to find himself. Lord George, I'm um, sorry, I just have to get this off my chest. I fear that if I don't come out and say it, I'll chicken out yet again. So here goes. I actually find Quake to be a wonderful character in Karth. It's... <laughs> And Karth is probably my favorite location in the whole series. I've just been too afraid to admit it out of fear of my coast, but think of me. There, I feel relieved to admit it. Anyway, I say, oh yeah, Lord George R.R. R. Michael. And our newest member of the small council, everyone give a warm welcome to Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices who has been elevated, as befits him of his rank from being a high lord to entering the small council. So welcome, Sir Tim. Thank you so much to all our counselors, as always, and a special welcome to Sir Tim. So happy to have you on the council, buddy. Mm-hmm. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, potentially t- we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dougie novels, histories, interviews, the Windspear sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. 
Our question this week comes from one of our small council patrons. Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, asks... This question came to me as I re-listened to episode 18 of the Nauticast, which discusses the chapter where Catelyn arrives in King's Landing. Let's say, for the sake of the question, that Peter Baelish had defeated Brandon Stark in the duel for Catelyn's hand back in the day. I know, it's ridiculous, but bear with me. At that point, would Catelyn actually have had to marry him? I can't imagine Hoster would have allowed her to marry him regardless of how the duel had gone. Would Hoster still need to consent to the marriage, or would Peter besting Brandon in combat have meant he could trump Hoster's will on the issue of Catelyn's marriage? If Hoster was not able to stop the marriage, would Catelyn have been able to? The agency of the woman being married tends not to be a huge factor in Westerosi marriages, but if Hoster hadn't wanted this marriage to happen and Catelyn hadn't wanted this marriage to happen, would Peter have been at all able to press a claim on her hand? I can't see Brandon admitting defeat to Peter, so for this scenario to work, Peter would have had to have killed Brandon. If Peter had killed the Stark heir in order to procure a marriage that no one involved <laughs> wanted to occur... He almost certainly would not have survived long enough post-duel for that marriage to actually take place. Still, I thought I'd see what you guys have to stay on this issue. It seems like a bit of Westerosi litigation and or arbitration would have been in order in this scenario. So how would the Nauticast guys arbitrate the case? Thanks as always, <laughs> and I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for that great question. Very well thought out and very interesting. Obviously, you know, we, we uh, aren't quite the sharp legal minds as, as some of our uh, friends uh, in the fandom. But what do you, what do you make of this, Jeff? I, I think like for this this question, I think it's very clear that even if Peter won the match, that there would never be a marriage between Peter and Catelyn Stark, uh, Catelyn Tully at the time, because simply put, Hoster Tully is not interested in marrying Catelyn off to anyone but one of the highest lords of the land. And the reason we know this is because he has done this over and over again, both with Catelyn and with Lysa. So I guess twice, technically. And... Part of the issue is that Hoster is looking to cement a Southern Ambitions alliance, and he is kind of the key, he is utilizing marriage as a key component of ensuring that he has that alliance ready to confront Aerys Targaryen when it actually comes about. So him marrying Catelyn off, Catelyn off to Peter Baelish seems incredibly unlikely to the point of absurdity. So would Catelyn actually have had to marry him? No, because Hoster would say, fuck off, Peter. Like, go back to the Fingers, wherever you're from, and stay there forever. Don't ever come out ever again. And that's fine. Um some of the other questions are interesting like would Peter besting Brandon in combat have meant he could trump Hoster's will in the issue of Catelyn's marriage I don't think so it more feels this is one of those weird things about this this I don't know if you can comment on this it feels like this is like kind of like some early like series kind of weirdnesses about it and that you can't imagine Hoster being like oh okay well I guess you won the match so you get to marry Catelyn Stark but there's that kind of romanticized ideal with Peter's playing towards and what he is basically has built his own legend around and he's made that part of who he is and that makes him kind of strange at least in, in the context of how we know marriage customs work in Westeros as the series develops on so I will stop talking for now because I've been talking for a little bit do you make what do you make of like this idea of the kind of or both the early onset weirdness for the series as well as some of the other questions that Kelly asks it, it is kind of weird that Brandon agreed to this duel at all because he basically didn't have to. And he seems to have done it basically because George needed him to and maybe kind of had a sense of duty to Catelyn because Catelyn wanted to try to save face for Littlefinger. But yeah, like, like this this really had does not seem to have much of a, a legal weight to it outside of Littlefinger's mind. And I wonder if, if so much of how Littlefinger handles power now is out of a recognition of that. I wonder if Littlefinger realizes, hey, even if I had won that duel, they wouldn't have let me marry Catelyn. 
So I have to assemble power in such a way that that's never gonna happen to me again. Because he realizes, oh, at Riverrun, I didn't have any allies. I didn't have anyone to make good on whatever claim I could possibly come up with. There were no soldiers who would do that for me. No maesters who would send out my decrees before anyone else has a chance to rule the narrative. No one was on my side, so it wouldn't matter. Now I have people on my side. Maybe not visibly in public with the mockingbird sewn over the breast, as he puts it to Sansa. But I have allies in such a position that I will never be completely without power again. Until, of course, yeah. he inevitably is at the, you know. <laughs> At the end of his story in the books. But I, I think it's, that's why I think this is an interesting question because, you know, I'm sure in Littlefinger's head at first it was just like, I came so close, if only I defeated Brandon. But the, and the reality is, given the, the dynamic between the songs and stories worldview and the realities of politics, is that it was all, it was all just a performance. It was a shadow on a wall. It didn't matter, Littlefinger. You got wounded for nothing. And I wonder if that kind of contributes to his bitterness. Cause yeah, it's not, it's not even just that Hoster wouldn't want to do it. It's Catelyn wouldn't want to either. And certainly, Women's agency is not exactly respected in Westeros, but you know that, that there's a re- there's a reason that like people are uncomfortable when Jane Poole is crying in Winterfell because like they're not actually a hundred percent on board with the idea that the wife is supposed to just be a prisoner. <laughs> like they they need this fig leaf. They need to be able to tell themselves that the woman is okay with it. And she's if Catelyn, yeah. yeah, they need to be able to tell themselves that. So if Catelyn is struggling to the altar. No one's. I, I don't think anyone's going to be okay with that, especially since Catelyn fits the image of chivalry. She's this beautiful, highborn woman. I can't allow this this lowborn ruffian to steal off with her. If anything, the the knights of Riverrun would draw their swords to stop Peter, not help him. Right, and I think that kind of brings up the last question, which is the idea of what happens if Brandon somehow kills, or excuse me, if Peter somehow kills Brandon in the duel. Dude, Littlefinger's fucking dead. Like Littlefinger is lucky if he gets to take the black at that point. That's his. <laughs> right. That's his best best case scenario. If he, you know, gets to the wall alive. And, and yeah, it's a big and I'm hit. sure Littlefinger now kind of realizes that. Maybe he doesn't want to admit that, but that's that's the reality of where the kind of romantic worldview led him. And, and I think like that is an interesting meditation on that kind of romantic worldview because you can see like the kind of tortured artist who has the tragic backstory that rises up above his circumstances to become Brendan Beefish. Um, I don't know. <laughs> ah, ah. Well, everyone's the hero of their own story, right? I mean, that's what makes, you know, characters like Ramsey or Euron kind of interesting is that they have tropes that you could associate with a hero's journey. Right. It's just that morally they've completely twisted them around. Exactly. And, and I think like here, like we're seeing like George kind of doing that in, in, inversion and that interpret, interpolation of Littlefinger so that instead of a story being like, oh, I'm a rags to riches story or I'm going to be better than all of them. It's like, no, I'm going to be a utter fucking nihilist and I'm going to utilize power in a way that I was denied in my youth and utilize and utilize different forms of power that was the the nobility seemingly doesn't have any idea how to utilize and that's how I will rise to power and that's how I will beat Brandon Stark even if he's you know 15 20 years in his grave by the time Littlefinger meets his end exactly right perfectly said sir so thank you Kelly for the question if you'd like to ask us questions we have to answer here on the not a cast podcast you're welcome to come a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f where you can find show notes, special posts, and 27 A Song of Ice and Fire slash pop culture bonus episodes. And our next Patreon episode is coming very, very soon. We know you probably have been made uh, somewhat aware of this episode (laughs) by us endlessly talking about it. But we begin our four-part series on Aaron Dampere's The Forsaken chapter, released from the Winds of Winter at the end of this month for all poor fellow and above patrons, which you can find over at patreon.com slash notacast ASOIAF. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one, particularly because we're actually recording it later this week. So, 
yeah, watch this, guys, man. The crow's eye is coming. Wow. Mm -hmm. Cannot wait. But enough about Patreon for now. When we last checked in with Catelyn Stark a mere three weeks ago, during our month of Catelyn, of course, she had just witnessed the Copper King fall to Stannis' shadow and made like a bat out of hell from Storm's End. Let's find out where Catelyn is and what our mother does in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 5. Two days' ride from River Run, a scout spied them watering their horse beside a muddy stream. Catelyn had never been so glad to see the Twin Tower patch of House Frey? Oh, okay. Catelyn wants to see her uncle Brendan, but he's out in the west with Rob. Martin Rivers, a Frey bastard, leads the outriders round these parts. Catelyn understands now, realizing that Rob had planned to go west all along as she was dealing with the Baratheons down in the south. So, she orders the scout to take her to Martin Rivers' camp. On the ride, someone asks if she's come from Bitterbridge, but no, no way at all. She couldn't go there after everything that had happened at Storm's End. They came through the war itself, though, to make it back into the Riverlands. She announces that Lord... <laughs> Renly is dead. Yeah, get his ass, Catelyn. One last time for the road. Anyways, the scout has heard the rumor, but it's not a rumor. Anyways, Catelyn asks after her brother Edmure, and the scout reports that Edmure is holding Riverrun and playing a rearguard action to Rob. This is... Just pause for a moment. This is an awfully knowledgeable scout here. Anyways, what's the word about Rob out west? You have not heard? The man seems surprised. His grace won a great victory at Oxcross. Sir Stafford Lannister is dead. His hosts scattered. Sir Wendell Manderley gave a whoop of pleasure, but Catelyn only nodded. Tomorrow's trials concerned her more than yesterday's triumphs. Martin Rivers had made his camp in the shell of a shattered holdfast beside a roofless stable and a hundred fresh graves. He went to one knee when Catelyn dismounted. Well met, my lady. Your brother has charged us to keep an eye out for your party and escort you back to Verrun, and all haste shall become upon you. Catelyn doesn't like the sound of that. Is this something to do with her dad? Nope, not that. It's just that Tywin Lannister is marching. Oh, and how long will Tywin take to get here? Ah, um, let me think. Three to four days, maybe? They've got scouts all on the bros, though, watching for his coming, so don't worry at all. They set up for Riverrun anyways, and Catelyn's men want to hear more about Oxcross, so Martin Rivers tells them. There's a singer come to Riverrun, calls himself Ryman the Rhymer. He's made a song of the fight. Doubtless you'll hear it sung tonight, my lady. Wolf of the night, this Ryman calls him. He went on to tell about how the remnants of Sir Stafford's host had fallen back on Lannisport. Without siege engines, there was no way to storm Casterly Rock, so the young wolf was paying the Lannisters back in kind for the devastation they'd inflicted on the Riverlands. Lords Karstark and Glover were raiding along the coast. Lady Mormont had captured thousands of cattle and was driving them back toward River Run, while the Great John had seized the gold mines of Castamere, Nuns Deep, and the Pendrick Hills. Sir Wendell laughed. Nothing's more like to bring the Lester running than a threat to his gold. Yeah, kind of right about that. But wait, how did Rob take the golden tooth? Seems unlikely. Ah, well, Rob never took it. Instead, he moved around it as Greywind showed him the way via a goat track. No Lancers saw Rob's approach. Anyways, did you hear the gnarly story that Rob cut out Stafford Lancer's heart and fed to Greywind? Sick, bro, sick. Catelyn warns Martin, though, not to spread those stories, and he agrees to for now. But he does say that Grey Wind was a gift from the old gods. Catelyn remembered the day when her boys had found the pups in the late summer snows. There had been five, three male and two female for the, tr for the five trueborn children of House Stark. And a sixth, white of fur and red of eye for Ned's bastard son, Jon Snow. No common wolf, she thought. No indeed. When they made camp later in the night, Brienne approaches Catelyn and asks if she can go. Catelyn isn't exactly surprised that Brienne asking to go and had noticed that Brienne mostly kept to herself during the journey north. 
She'd ridden with them every day and slept among them every night without ever truly becoming one of them. Catelyn thinks that Brienne puts up a lot of walls to the people around her, so she tries to breach the wall by asking where she'd go. Why, she's going to Storm's End, of course. Alone. And she's going there, guess what, to kill Stannis. She swore a vow, to three, she swore a vow three times after all. Catelyn had heard her every single time. Now, Catelyn had heard her, but she tries to counsel Brienne not to go to Storm's End. She'd fail in her quest in the first place. Stannis has too many guards around him. And look, Brienne, it really wasn't your fault that Renly died. But Catelyn knows how hard it is for Brienne. Brienne shook off her hand. No one knows. You're wrong, Catelyn said sharply. Every morning when I wake, I remember that Ned is gone. I have no skill with swords, but that does not mean that I do not dream of riding to King's Landing and wrapping my hands around Cersei Lannister's white throat and squeezing until her face turns black. Oh, this is a new side of Catelyn we haven't quite seen before, though I'll argue we have sort of in the past, and will again, definitely in the future. Brienne seems to realize this as she asks why Catelyn would hold her back if that's what Brienne desired to do and what Catelyn desired to do. Was she scared of Stannis? Catelyn considers for a moment and responds that Renly's death was evil beyond all doubt. Okay, okay, guys, finally, I guess. Okay, fine. Catelyn has only been wrong twice in her life. Two times. <clears throat> but the gods are in control of such things. That would make Stannis the rifle. Brienne cuts him off. He ate the rifle king. Robert wasn't the rifle king either because Jamie killed the rifle king. The gods don't care and neither does the king. So Renly would have been the best king. He was so good and dead, Catelyn retorts. Stannis and Joffrey are alive. Horrified, Brienne says that the Starks would never make peace with Stannis or, God forbid, bend the knee to him. Would they? Catelyn says she doesn't know. She can only follow the commands of her son. She's not the queen mother. Well, she is the queen mother. She's not the queen, though. She's only a mom with a job who wants to keep her, who wants to keep her kids safe and alive. So Catelyn charges Brienne to fight for the living against Renly's enemies, who, by the way, are also very likely Rob's enemies if they are not already. Brienne stared at the ground and shuffled her feet. I do not I do not know your son, my lady. She looked up. I, I could serve you if you would have me. Catelyn was startled. Why me? The question seemed to trouble Brienne. You helped me. In the pavilion. When when they thought I had that I had you were innocent. Even so, you did not have to do that. You could have let them kill me. I was nothing to you. Catelyn muses that she might be a cynic and only wanted another witness to what happened in Brinley's tent. But instead of saying that, she states that she's never had someone like Brienne in her service before. Besides, Catelyn isn't a battle bro. No, but you have a courage. Not, not, not a battle courage, perhaps, but I don't know, a kind of woman's courage. And, and I think when the time comes, you will not try and hold me back. Promise me that, that you will not hold me back from Stannis. Catelyn could still hear Stannis saying that Rob's turn, too, would come in time. It was like a cold breath on the back of her neck. When the time comes, I will not hold you back, Brienne. The tall girl knelt awkwardly, unsheathed Renly's longsword, and laid it at her feet. Then I am yours, my lady. Your liege man, or whatever you would have me be. I will shield your back and keep your counsel and give my life for yours if need be. I swear it by the old gods and the new. And I vow, Catelyn said, that you shall always have a place by my hearth, and meet and meet at my table, and pledge to ask no service of you that might bring you into dishonor. I swear it by the old gods anew. Arise. As Catelyn clasped the other woman's hands between her own, she couldn't help but smile. How many times did I watch Ned accept a man's oath of service, she wondered. She wondered what he would think if he could see her now. 
They crossed the Red Fork the next day, seeing Malister soldiers guarding the crossing. The Malisters warned Catelyn of traps laid in the river, traps that Edmure commanded be laid for Tywin's oncoming force. Catelyn then realizes that Edmure is going to fight at the river crossings, and she feels kind of uneasy about it. They continue on through the land between the Red Fork and the Tumblestone, with many small folk heading for Riverrun as well. A half mile from Riverrun, they find one Riverlander army camp. Lucas Blackwood heads off to find his father. Closer to the castle, they find a second army camp with Piper, Derry, and Page troops. Catelyn realizes that these soldiers were here at Edmure's command. Her brother was indeed going to fight the Lannisters. On the walls of Riverrun itself, she discovers dead men with crimson cloaks hanging from the walls. Her escort makes jokes and laughs at the dead men, but Brienne, she just stares up at them. If they have slain the Kingslayer, then my daughters are dead as well. Catelyn spurred her course into a canter. The gates are open as Catelyn approaches and Edmure rides out with Master at Arms, Sir Desmond Grell, Arthur Rides, Wayne, Steward, and Sir Robin Riger, the Riverrun Captain of Guards. Catelyn notes that they're as old as her father, but but they're as old as her father, but Edmure. Ah, Edmure. He looks fine wearing those tully colors with a, quote, fierce red beard, all bushy-like. He greets her, stating that he feared that Tywin had gotten her. Catelyn asks after Big Daddy Hoster, and Edmure replies that, well, their father is strong and weak, day-dependent. He asked for Catelyn, but Edmure really didn't know what to tell him. I will go to him soon, she vowed. Has there been word from Storm's End since Renly died, or from Bitterbridge? No ravens came to men on the road, and Catelyn was anxious to know what had happened behind her. Nothing nothing from Bitterbridge, from Storm's End, three birds from the Castell and Sir Courtney Penrose, all carrying the same plea. Stannis has him surrounded by land and sea. He offers his allegiance to whatsoever king will break the siege. He fears for the boy, he says. What boy would that be, do you know? Edric Storm, Brienne told him. Robert's bastard son. Edmure looked at her curiously. Stannis has sworn that the garrison might go free unharmed, provided they yield the castle within the fortnight and deliver the boy into his hands. But Sir Courtney will not consent. He risks all for a bastard boy, whose blood is not even his own, Catelyn thought. Catelyn asks if they send a reply back. No, they don't have any offer to, they don't have any help to offer, and Stannis isn't their enemy, right? Um, yeah, uh, about that. Robin Riger asks how Renly died, and Edmure puts in the, that word on the streets that Catelyn or some southern woman did that little terrorist in. My king was murdered, the girl said quietly, and not by Lady Catelyn. I swear it by my sword, by the old gods anew. Catelyn introduces Brienne to everyone, and all the men display excellent courtesies, so much so that Brienne looks flustered. Man, you have to pause here for a second. Renly's camp was just filled with assholes, wasn't it? Reads ahead, uh, so I read ahead a little bit to Brienne's chapters in the Feast of Crows. Yeah, absolutely. Catelyn states that Brienne was with her when Renly was killed, but they didn't do it. Still, Catelyn doesn't want to talk about the shadow that did him in. About all the men you've hanged, though, hmm, who were they? Edmure replies that they were men who accompanied Sir Cleos Frey. Shocked, Catelyn asks if they hanged envoys. Not real envoys, Redmure explains. False envoys. They pledged me their peace and surrendered their weapons, so I allowed them freedom of the castle for three, and for three nights they ate my mead and drank my mead whilst I talked with Sir Cleos. On the fourth night, they tried to free the Kingslayer. He pointed up. That big brute killed two guards with naught but those ham hands of his, cut them by his throats and smashed their skulls together while that skinny lad beside him was opening Lannister's cell with a bit of wire. Guts, curse him. The one on the end was some sort of damned mummer. He used my own voice to command that the river gate be opened. The guardsman swears to it, anger and delp and long loo all three. If you ask me, the man sounded nothing like me, and yet the oafs were still raising the portcullis all the same. Catelyn thinks this is Tyrion's work, which 
Yeah, it totally is. She asks how they were caught, and Edmure starts tripping over his words about how he was um out in the country doing, um, yeah, you were getting laid, Catelyn interjects. Tell the story. Well, his guards realized that it was Edmure on a boat below and sounded the alarm. Fortunately, they recaptured Jamie, but a couple of dudes were killed in the ensuing brawl. Edmure hanged those who aided in the escape attempt. He then put Jamie into a dungeon and Sir Cleos Frey into Jamie's old tower cell. Catelyn asks if they brought terms, but Edmure snaps that they aren't actual real terms. True. Authorized Wayne asks if there's any help coming from the south. Stannis could make common cause with them, right? Right? Stannis has made common cause with a power greater and darker Catelyn thinks. But Catelyn doesn't want to talk about this anymore. She walks her horse over the drawbridge next to Edmure, but then a naked child runs out in front of the horse, causing her to rein up hard to avoid running over this kid. Catelyn sees hundreds of small folk within the castle of Riverrun along with their livestock. Along with their livestock. Who are these folk? My people, Edmure answered. They were afraid. Only my sweet brother would crowd all these useless mouths into a castle that might soon be under siege. Catelyn knew that Edmure had a soft heart. Sometimes she thought his head was even softer. She loved him for it, yet still. Okay, Catelyn wrong three times, maybe in the narrative. Just three times total. But hell yeah, Edmure. Get him, boy. Catelyn asks if she can send a raven to Rob, but she can't. Rob is in the field and unable to be found by any bird. Anyways, Rob left Oars with Riverrun to dispatch her to the twins when she returned to find a bride for Rob. Edmure says that he'll give her fresh horses and provisions, but absolutely not. Catelyn is staying the fuck at Riverrun. She's not going anywhere with her father dying, even if Rob ordered it. Edmure Bristleson says that Tywin is coming. Yeah, so just let Tywin pass in the Westerlands, right? This is Tullyland, Edmure declared. If Tywin Lannister thinks to cross it unbloodied, I mean to teach him a hard lesson. The same lesson you taught his son? Her brother could be as stubborn as River Rock when his pride was touched, but neither of them was likely to forget how Sir Jaime had cut Edmure's host to bloody pieces the last time he had offered battle. We have nothing to gain and everything to, and everything to lose by beating Lord Tywin in the field, Catelyn said tactfully. The yard is not the place to discuss my battle plans. As you will. Where should we go? His <laughs> I love that. Her brother's face darkened. For a moment, she thought he was about to lose his temper with her, but finally he snapped. The godswood, if you insist. Catelyn follows Edmure to the godswood, feeling sorry for wounding his pride. Just a little. When they arrive, she tells Edmure that he doesn't have the strength to fight the Lannisters. Yeah, that's what you think. He's going to have 11,000 dudes to fight Tywin. But Tywin has double that Catelyn counters. Yeah, but Rob won against worse odds, and Edmure has a plan. Plus... Good news! He has Roose Bolton coming! Yeah, and Roose has taken the Ruby Ford with 10,000 soldiers. Helmand Tallhart is also coming down from the twins with his garrison to augment Roose Bolton's army. Edmure, Rob left those men to hold the twins and make certain Lord Walder keeps faith with us. He has, Edmure said stubbornly. The phrase fought, fought bravely in the Whispering Wood, and old Sir Steverin died at Oxcross, we hear. Sir Ryman and Blackwater and the rest are with, Robin in the West, are with Rob in the West. Martin has been of great service scouting, and Sir Perwin helped see you safe to Renly. Gods be good, how much more can we ask of them? Rob's betrothed to one of Lord Walder's daughters, and Roose Bolton wed another, I hear. And have you taken two of his grandsons to be fostered Rinnerfell? Catelyn feels uneasy that Steverin is dead and that Roose got his ass hitched, but she admits that the Walder's fray can be hostages. So Lord Walder won't betray them, right? Anyways, the plan for Roose is to take Harren Hall while Edmure repels Tywin's army, meaning that Tywin has no place to retreat, and then Rob can return from the Westerlands to finish Tywin's stranded army off. It's a fail-safe plan, Cat. Don't worry. 
but Catelyn is worried a lot. She wishes that the Blackfish wasn't out in the Westerlands when he was a combat veteran of a lot of battles and Edmure was only the veteran of one battle, one that he lost. The plan's a good one, he concluded. Lord Titus says so, and Lord Jonas as well. When did Lord Blackwood and Bracken agree about anything that was not certain, I ask you? Be that as it may, she was suddenly weary. Perhaps she was wrong to oppose him. P perhaps it was a splendid plan, her misgivings only a woman's fears. She wished never here, or Uncle Brynden, or... Catelyn asks if Hoster was told of the plan, but Amir says that Big Daddy Hoster isn't in his right mind anymore. He's lost a memory, rambling about Catelyn marrying Brendan. But Edmure's plan will work. Trust in Edmure. I hope so, Edmure. I truly, truly do. She kissed him on the cheek to let him know she meant it and went to find her father. Catelyn finds her dad much as she left him. He was in bed and looking sick, and he had a smell of sickness and death around him. But when she opens the curtains to his room, his eyes flick open. Father... She kissed him. I am returned. He seemed to know her then. You've come, he whispered faintly, lips barely moving. Yes, she said. Rob sent me south, but I hurried back. South? Where, where, where is the eerie child? South, sweetling. I, I, don't, I don't recall. Oh, dear heart, I was afraid. Have you forgiven me, child? Tears ran down Hoster's cheeks. Catelyn says there's nothing to forgive, and then Hoster starts muttering about John being a good man, and you'll marry him when Catelyn weds. And then Catelyn sadly realizes that Hoster thinks that Catelyn is Lysa. But then Hoster starts, yeah, he starts talking a little some more. Her father's hands clutch at hers, fluttering like two frightened white birds. That stripling, wretched boy, not speak that name to me, your duty, your mother, she would. Lord Hoster cried out as a spasm pain washed him. Oh, gods, forgive me. Forgive me, my, my medicine. Maester Vyman shows up with the milk of the poppy and his face then gets all peaceful after he drinks the potion. Vyman says Hoster will sleep now, but Catelyn can't be here anymore. It was hurting her soul to see her to see her father the way that he is now. So she heads out to the terrace and looks out the castle courtyard with all the refugees in it. Then she looks out to the rivers flowing clean, pure, and endless. Love that. Those are his rivers, and soon he will return to them for his last voyage. Maester Vyman had followed her out. My lady, he said softly, I cannot keep the end at bay much longer. We ought to send a rider after his brother. Sir Brendan will wish to be here. Yes, Catelyn said, her voice thick with her grief. But then Vyman brings up, maybe sending a letter to Lysa too? No, she's not going to come. But Catelyn, well, she will write to Lysa if it'll make Vyman feel better. But who was that guy that Hoster was really against? Lysa did love some singers back in the day. Maybe it was just a singer or something like that? Hmm. I wonder who this mysterious person might be. <coughs> it's a little figure. Catelyn finds herself back in the tower room at, that she had grown up in, and she needs to rest, and maybe she wouldn't feel so melancholy. But there's no rest to be had. She finds authorized Wayne with two gray women outside of her chambers. Catelyn knew at once why they were here. Ned? The sisters lowered their gaze. Authorized said, Sir Cleos brought him from King's Landing, my lady. Take me to him, she commanded. She finds Ned laid out on a table with a stark banner covering him. She asks to look at him, but Authorized says there's only bones to be seen. She still wants to look at him, though. She still wants to see him. One of the silent sisters lowers the banner to reveal Ned's bones. Bones, Catelyn thought. This is not Ned. This is not the man I loved, the father of my children. His hands were clasped together over his chest, skeletal fingers curled about the hilt of some longsword. But they were not Ned's hands, so strong and full of life. They addressed the bones of Ned's surcoat, the fine white velvet with a direwolf badge over the heart. 
but nothing remained of the warm flesh that had pillowed her head so many nights, the arms that had held her. The head had been rejoined to the body with fine silver wire, but one skull looks much like another, and in those empty hollows she found no trace of her lord's dark gray eyes, eyes that could be so soft as fog or hard as stone. They gave his eyes to the crow she remembered. Catelyn states that this wasn't Ned's sword that he's carrying and holding, and authorized replies that the Lancers did not return Ned's sword, only his bones. Catelyn says that she should thank the Queen for that much, but no, it wasn't Cersei's doing. If she wanted to thank someone, thank Tyrion. One day, I will thank them all. Catelyn thanks the Silent Sisters for their service, but then gives them a new task. They need to take Ned's bones to Winterfell to rest under the crypt under the castle. She instructs Authorides Wayne to give the sisters fresh horses and everything they need for the journey. Howell Mullen will be tasked with escorting the Silent Sisters and Ned back to Winterfell, as he is Winterfell's captain of guards. She gazed down at the bones that were all that remained of her lord and love. Now leave me, all of you. I would be alone with Ned tonight. The woman in grey bowed their heads. The Silent Sisters do not speak to the living, Catelyn remembered dully. But some say they can talk to the dead. And how she envied that. And that is The Clash of Kings, Catelyn 5. Um, I feel like Catelyn's chapters in A Clash of Kings, I correct me if I'm wrong, but they mostly get reduced to her basically her two chapters at Storm's End. And yeah, those chapters are fantastic chapters. I love them. But wow, I mean, this chapter is just like really, really, really good. We were talking about this in the pre-episode, so I'll, I'll say it again here. But this chapter feels very much a part of Catelyn's story, whereas the Storm's End chapters feel very much a part of Stannis and Renly's story with Catelyn having a major role to play there, but definitely playing kind of a secondary figure in her own POV chapters. What did you make of this chapter I'm in? Catelyn 5 is not as easy to summarize as her last couple chapters. It doesn't really build to a single big plot point. Instead, it's a series of alternately delicate and devastating negotiations with all the powerful forces running over and through these fragile individuals. War and peace, life and death, age and youth, fear and desire. They coexist in every paragraph of Catalan V, feeding off each other. Try as she might to untangle them into a world that still makes sense to her, these opposites stay stubbornly bound together, all of them orbiting the three themes that define this chapter, the three words of House Tully and the title of this episode, <laughs> family, duty, and honor. The fluidity and com complexity of this chapter is astonishing, mm -hmm. yet George never loses sight of the emotional ache at the heart of it. And it's just another reason that Catelyn is my favorite POV in A Clash of Kings. I think I'm totally around to your position at that point right now that I definitely feel that Catelyn is my also favorite point of view character in, in A Clash of Kings. And I think we saw in the for her first four chapters that how her as our heroine was performing a last-ditch attempt at peace with Renly, with Stannis, and hey, let's do a great council with anything, anything. She was trying all of, everything possible to make peace happen. But all, everything, all of her efforts failed. There would be no peace, and Catelyn V really feels like the spot where Catelyn has sorrowfully realized this and begins making long strides towards her stone-hearted destiny. Now, she's not utterly hopeless in this chapter. Bran and Rickon aren't dead yet, but that aching melancholy which dominates Cat's journey from here until the Red Wedding and there afterwards is felt here, and this is a large part of why I love Catelyn's POV chapters. She feels like a real person, like an authentic person with real authentic struggles. Yeah, and I, and I get it. Martin takes pains to ensure that other characters have real human struggles and feel realistic enough. But I can't say, and maybe you have, but I can't say I'll ever encounter a Cersei Lannister in my life or a Tyrion Lannister or a Daenerys Targaryen in my day-to-day -day travels. 
but I've met a thousand Catlins in my life, and reading this chapter helps me to understand and empathize with them just a little bit more. I think that's really well said. I especially like that you, you called it authentic. I think that's exactly right, even more than than realistic, because everyone's going to have a different definition of that, of course. But authentic, that this feels like a psychology on the page, not something that was constructed, like it's a real person bleeding through. And right from the beginning of this chapter, we get a collision between all the things that make a human being what they are, the contradictory forces, joy and despair, and life and death. Catelyn is so happy to see the Twin Towers of House Frey. <laughs> but as rereaders, we know those towers will spell her doom. Even as a first-time reader, this chapter is overflowing with these interlinked opposites, suggesting how everything contains its negation, an action spawning a reaction, and how the human heart is a vessel for that full range of emotions. Catelyn describes herself as having ridden through the heart of the war. Yet the war itself, as we see with Stannis' banner, is repeatedly characterized as an absence of heart. She's riding through this heart that does not exist. In the heart of the war, fertile land becomes blackened desert, with fury, human passion, the human heart, as the agent of conversion. And of course, right after describing this, this turn from summer to winter, Catelyn brings up Renly's death, because summer turning to winter is exactly what happened to him at Storm's End. The corruption, the fall, it extends well beyond the royal family, the Baratheon bros themselves. It's as if all the land is giving up the ghost, entropy taking over where life and love once reigned. Catelyn meets Martin Rivers, who heads the Outriders near River Run now that the Blackfish has gone west, and he is a ruddy, pleasant man with little resemblance in appearance or temperament to his trueborn Frey brothers. His name, Rivers, speaks to the rivers that Catelyn associates with life throughout her story, especially in this chapter. Yet he has made his camp in a shattered holdfast, next to a hundred fresh graves. Life and death are hopelessly commingled, like the smell Arya encountered that you talked so well about when she was in that village near the God's Eye, how she, she smelled something good commingling with the smell of death. Martin was sent to watch for Catelyn, and she assumes at first it's because something has happened to Hoster. That's the death hanging over her, that specter. But actually, it's a different source of death. Tywin is on the march. So now Catelyn 5 feels like the flip side to Arya 8, that it's the same struggles with power and death, the same kind of conflict regarding Tywin, seen from the other side. Catelyn is also concerned that Stannis will be on the march soon. Tywin and Stannis, these, these tall, kind of grim-balding, scowling military men, fearsome figures of death in Catelyn's minds that are kind of becoming one and the same for her. It is in this context, reeling from the deaths behind her and fearing the deaths to come, that Catelyn finally hears word of Rob's victory at the Battle of Oxcross. It's the fourth time the reader has been made aware of what went down in the Westerlands. We learned about it at the Lannister Court in Sansa 3, and saw it filter through the Winterfell Court in Bran 5 and Tywin's army in Arya 8. And now we are hearing about it at River Run, which ought to be the most joyous backdrop for this news. We're in a Stark court, after all, and not even the home front of Stark court, like in Brand 5, where they are glad they won a battle, but they missed the people off at war. Well, now we're back at the front. There's no complications to be had. There's no worries about getting Rob home or saving oneself from the Lannisters like Sansa and Arya are worried about. This should be purely good news. And it is purely good news for the men around Catelyn, who take heart, the heart of the war, from Rob's victory. But it's not good news for Catelyn, who, who thinks that she is more concerned with tomorrow's trials than with yesterday's victories. And this beautifully captures so much, both about Catelyn as, a, as an individual and about human nature in general. As Catelyn will say later in the book, she feels she has become a sour woman, someone who fixates only on the grievous side of life, only the losses, never the gains, only winter, never summer. 
She cannot take joy from victory because all she can think of is the potential for defeat on the morrow. On the other hand, that's not just Catelyn's perspective. That really is how it works. Oxcross won't save Rob, and one defeat can be all that it takes no matter how many victories you win. It's impossible to live in the present moment. The past and future are always closing in, constantly offering convincing cases for utter nihilism. Doing better than that is quite literally a confidence scheme. You have to fake confidence and serenity and happiness until you make it. It's a trick, a shadow on a wall. You have to lie to yourself a little just to get through life, just to do any good at all. And Catelyn is losing the ability to do that. She is seeing behind the curtain, her doors of perception cleansed. She is coming to understand what so many characters in The Song of Ice and Fire understand, that her previous life was woven together with words. Oaths, declarations, histories, songs, stories. These words have power, but only when we invest that power in them. In the beginning was the word, but for Catelyn, she's fearing that there is no god behind the word. It's only us. It's all beginning to waver, and what Catelyn sees beyond the gossamer veil is death, and more death, with a side order of extra death. Death and despair forever. Death without meaning, death without purpose, death that negates life and quashes happiness and leaves you alone. Death that births Lady Stoneheart. So she rides silently as her men listen eagerly to the story of Rob's victory in the Westerlands. We aren't even hearing a song. We're hearing like a story about a song, <laughs> interjecting some reality and some extra myth regarding Grey Wind and the heart. This is George giving us a tour of the heart of the image factory, how reputation is made, the dialectical process by which reality is combined with bullshit to create a new reality. Even the guy telling you the reality behind the song, even Martin Rivers who's saying, yeah, it's not quite what Wolf in the Night by Ryman the Rhymer says what happened, even he has swallowed the myth. Because even when Catelyn points out that hey, Rob would never feed an enemy's heart to his wolf, he would never do that, uh, the guy still kind of wants to believe it. You can tell he's like, yeah, I know that's kind of horrible, but it sounds kind of badass. And you can't blame him because at the core of all this is the reality that the wolves almost were, certainly were sent to the Starklings by the old gods. But it's got nothing to do with Oxgross or the Golden Tooth or the Lannisters or Ryman's the Rhymer. All of that is what we project, what we bring to the table. Like, Catelyn can dismiss this practice of, like, feeding Stafford's heart to Greywind as savage, but hey, clearly some people in her class, from her part of the country, who share her faith, are into it. Moreover, we hear that Rob's lords are now paying back the Westerlands for the destruction of the Riverlands, or at least that's how they think about it. In truth, none of the people responsible for the destruction of the Riverlands are suffering in any other way than financial here, and even then it's only temporary. The people directly suffering, losing their lives and livelihoods with little hope of redress from their own lords, let alone Rob's, are the Westerland's small folk. And they had no say in any of this. Now suddenly Great John Umber comes roaring over the only land you have ever known, cutting down your family and forcing your friends to work the mines for him. So who's the villain in this war, in your eyes? Now, to be fair, <laughs> Tywin is engaged in kidnapping and enslaving the small folk en masse and is deliberately sowing terror with his pet monsters to force Rob to face him. And there is no indication that Rob goes that far in the Westerlands. To be scrupulously fair, as always. Uh, you are always so very scrupulously fair. We well, thank you, sir. Matters, of course. And, you know, who is the person that small folk is going to think is the villain? It's the Starks, of course. And I think it's easy, I think, for us as readers to fall into this mentality. It's the Starks, good guy. Starks do no wrong. And I think that's wrong. And you can also fall into this line of thinking when Rob explains the strategic intent behind what he's doing in the Westerlands in A Storm of Swords when he's explaining to Edbeer, you think we stay for plunder? Rob's incredulous. 
uncle. I wanted Lord Tywin to come west. Does this plan net Rob and Brynden the reaction they want from Tywin? Yeah. And as we'll talk about a little bit later on, Tywin has taken the bait and is moving on from Harrenhal back into the Westerlands. But do you think that actually matters to a Westerlands peasant who was just robbed of their livestock with winter on the horizon? Oh, okay, you're only doing this because you want to bait Tywin Lancer to coming west? Okay, that makes sense. Please take all the livestock you need to defeat my overlord, my lord of last hearth. I mean, no, come on, guys. Think about this honestly, how you would react in this situation. Now, here's the kicker. Where did this plan of Rob's come from? Where did the idea originate? Chevachet does seem to be a common practice of Westerosi warfare, but to make a probably controversial argument, I think that Rob Stark is essentially taking a leaf from Tywin Lannister's playbook. In A Game of Thrones, Tywin deliberately sowed terror in order to bait the Tullys into striking the first blow as the aggressors to give the Lannisters the legal pretext to invade the Riverlands, defeat the Tullys, and secure the release of Tyrion, who was being held hostage by Catelyn up in the Eyrie. And then, as you were saying, Tywin's terror campaign in the Riverlands and A Clash of Kings was an attempt to bait Robb Stark into attacking Harrenhal while scattering the Riverlords out so they wouldn't be able to be massed together in order to defeat Tywin. This is the same tactic that Robb is basically doing the same thing here, a campaign of chevauchee to bait Tywin Lannister into attacking him. It's the same tactic that Tywin used, albeit, as we're saying, to be fair, done in the normal course of warfare as opposed to the industrial scale atrocities that Tywin commits in the War of the Five Kings. But does that excuse the kind of wartime behavior here? I think that's the question that Martin at least wants us to pose, is posing to us, and it's up to us as readers to answer it. Well, there's relative morality and then there's absolute morality, right? Even the normal practice of war carries horrors with it and wounds that will never heal, and perspectives that are very different from Catalan's or ours as readers. The overall point is the escalation of violence and all the long-standing bitterness and resentments that go with it. This raid is a response to the destruction of the Riverlands, which was a response to Catalan snatching Tyrion. In response to the Red Wedding, we get Stoneheart's corruption of the Brotherhood. Again, this is not to say it's a wash between all sides. George does write the Lannisters as consistently conducting themselves in a more cruel and selfish fashion than the Starks. Rather, this is to say that even the good guys have been seduced by the taste of gold and glory rather than keeping peace as their highest priority. It is easy to talk yourself into all manner of slippage and corruption when you are facing an unreasonable foe. We saw that with Stannis and Renly, a race to the bottom. As long as you can keep telling yourself you're not the worst player in the game, you can ignore how the entire game around you is getting worse until it's far too late. Once more, the Battle of Oxcross is a shadow on a wall, revealing everyone's interests by how they project themselves into it, and stories work the same way. Shadow, the shadow imagery is really, really powerful in A Clash of Kings, and I'm glad you keep bringing it up over and over in our episodes. It's awesome. And you had mentioned this back when we were doing our episodes on Game of Thrones about how the class structure of Westeros, it works as a microcosm for how the others function in the story. War in feudal Westeros really ups the parasitic relationship between the nobles and the small folk that are being impressed, impressed, that are being oppressed by the nobles. The small folk become pawns as the High Lords play the Game of Thrones. They can be robbed, brutalized, killed enslaved by those lords to gain small tactical advantage over their enemies. The others work similarly, using Craster and his wives as other producing as an other producing factory and enslaving dead humans into undead weight into undead whites. And that's why I think it's really important that this chapter is not just sheer nihilism, and why it's so important that amidst all of the long night imagery that George is kind of utilizing here with the shadows and so forth, you also have a few willing to stand athwart the shadows yelling, stop. Perfectly said, sir. I think that's exactly the larger dynamic in A Clash of Kings specifically and how it's pointing to the others, as you say, kind of in the background in John's chapter specifically. 
but uh, within you know the the specific character dynamics of the of this chapter that this pattern of collisions between youth and age and life and death and how it all keeps mounting to everything pouring down the drain of time continues with an intimate scene between Catelyn and her new supporting character Brienne. Catelyn describes how Brienne has taken part in all the necessary tasks on the road to get here, and she always speaks politely when spoken to, but that's it. Just like how Catelyn's losses have left her unable to enjoy the present, tainted as it is by the grief of the past and the dread of the future, Brienne is only the semblance of a living person, only the outer shell, the image, the shadow. She's dead inside. She performs the rote duties, but with none of the life and love that duty is ostensibly supposed to be protecting. She is a loner, an outcast, more than ever. She is not one of them, as Catelyn puts it. There are walls around this one higher than Winterfell. A castle under siege is a metaphor for a lonely, alienated soul. We'll see it again with Theon at Winterfell at book's end. It's also a link to Brienne's ancestor, Dunk the Lunk, thick as a castle, thick as a castle wall. Castle walls can keep you safe, but they also cut you off from humanity. We see that with this, this, this push-pull dynamic across the series, from Tyrion's phrase, wear it like armor, to Jamie's talking about going away inside, to the wall itself, which keeps out the others, but it also keeps out the wildlings. When we met Brienne, her face was lighting up with pride, as Renly bestowed a rainbow cloak upon her. And now we understand that for Brienne, this moment of satisfaction, of coherence between her external and internal selves, of accepting her own face in the mirror, that was an exception. This isolation, for her, is the rule. These walls have been up for years, because other than Renly, Brienne never met anyone she considered worthy of letting inside. They would mock her, hurt her, and then walk away, like Red Ronald Connington, as we'll see in A Feast for Crows. She wants to leave Catelyn precisely because Catelyn is now among those who make her, Catelyn, feel at home, something Brienne only ever had with Renly. Brienne doesn't want any part of Catelyn's home and community. They will only make her feel the lack of it all the more. She is committed to the loner's life, a heroic knight standing up against injustice, a sacrifice too good for this world. And you can see here how Catelyn's, uh, Brienne's fairy tale, we will live forever in song mindset from Bitterbridge, wasn't completely shattered by Renly's death. Instead, it was inverted. She's gone from being a bodyguard to being a kamikaze assassin. The emotional tenor has flipped from joy to despair, but the common thread is that Brienne needs, absolutely needs, with every fiber of her being, to devote herself to someone. She has never been able to be comfortable with herself, alone behind her walls with that face in the mirror, so she needs to externalize her reason for being onto someone else, someone good. She can defend to the death, and so be at peace. And that's why Renly's Rorschach blot shell game of empty charm <laughs> worked so well on Brienne. Yeah, sure, he's an empty vessel to be filled, but that's exactly what she needed. She keeps her rainbow cloak because it fit, literally and figuratively. And now all she can wear is strangers, odds, and ends, fragments of identities that aren't hers. The broad face was a pool of still water, giving no hint of what might live in the depths below. Brienne wants only to be a still pool, a mirror, reflecting perfectly back the object of her devotion, more beautiful than she can ever be. But Brienne is not a duty robot, she is not a zombie slave, she is a living, breathing person, and no matter how she pretends otherwise, she is hurting. The only place she can think to put all that pain is a sword buried in Stannis' guts. That'll get rid of it all. That's what I vowed to do three times, the magic number. Oaths, revenge, my king's sword. <laughs> It's a new narrative snapping back into place, a much sadder song than Brienne wanted to live, 
but it's better than chaos, better than a life without the songs as far as she's concerned. Absolutely. And again, George is showing us how appealing vengeance can be to the characters in the narrative and in real life, too. And this can also appeal to a good character like Brienne of Tarth. Gutting Stannis is temptingly sweet, and it's temptingly sweet to Brienne because it satisfies that need to respond to violence with violence. But the story theme of how violence leaves the people committing it hollow inside is one that's spread throughout all five books of A Song of Ice and Fire. Really specifically to Catelyn Stark's story as we find out in A Feast for Crows and her, vis- and her visage as Lady Stoneheart. And that's what vengeance does or will do to the characters who engage in it on a personal level. And if you guys have not been following on Twitter, George R. R. Martin has been running polls on the audiobook scenes that he wants you know, to read, to vote on this thing. And the one that won for his first Storm of Swords was Arya's scene at the end of the crossroads. And I was re-listening to that literally today as we were recording this episode. And I was struck by this line that, uh, that Roy Dutrice read so well as Arya's thinking about after she hears that Joffrey's dead. Joffrey's dead. She could almost see him with his blonde curls and his mean smile and his fat, soft lips. Joffrey's dead. She knew it ought to make her happy, but somehow she still felt empty inside. That emptiness that Arya feels at Joffrey's death, an emptiness brought about by death, not even a death that she's actually responsible for. She's responsible for a number of other deaths, but not for his death specifically, is what Catelyn is attempting to prevent for Brienne, preventing that mentality from sinking in. Because Catelyn is well aware of how death leaves people feeling because she's felt it herself. Catelyn understands the appeal of this mindset of trying to hold on to some version of your older self, your older way of looking at the world. I mean, she might have given up on specifically living inside the songs and stories long ago, but Catelyn has been trying to hold on to the idea that oaths have power, that they will save her and hers on their own. But Brienne demonstrates that this isn't the case. What matters is what people make of what they're given, shadows on a wall. Is that what troubles you, that some fool might call you craven, as Catelyn asks Brienne? Brienne is ready to, ready to die for her image. Catelyn wants to spare her that. But in order to do so, she has to come up with an alternate worldview, a way of looking at what's happening in Westeros that doesn't lead to the conclusion that Brienne should ride off to a glorious death. Catelyn sees her own grief and isolation in Brienne's, and she too wants to give herself over to the catharsis of revenge, and senses that isolation makes this more attractive to Brienne. Why not die against your enemies if you have no friends? So Catelyn reaches out as she puts it, to offer what comfort a touch can give. Simple empathy. I see you. I see your suffering. I cannot resolve it, but I can share it. Brienne rejects her touch because like so many people lost and grieving, the one foundation she has left is her sense that her pain makes her unique. If all Brienne has now is grief, then she will grieve the most, damn it! It's the only way to honor what she felt for Renly. No one could ever understand, because if it was something people could understand, it wasn't so special after all. The need to believe that we are separate from humanity can sometimes be sympathetic, as with Brienne. It can also be very unsympathetic, as with someone like Euron. But in the end, no man is an island, and even walls with justifiable foundations must fall. The fact that Catelyn understands Brienne's pain and anger doesn't devalue those emotions. It doesn't make them ordinary. It frames them as threads running through the common fabric of humanity. It's something that Catelyn and Brienne can share. Catelyn wants Brienne to understand that everyone is broken, not just her. The people walking around smiling and laughing with each other have just learned how to hide it better. Everyone is walking around with ghosts, longing at some level to join them. Brienne must be part of that world or she will always be alone and unhappy, even as she does good deeds. She must cross that bridge. 
But establishing empathy doesn't necessarily answer all of your questions. It just means you have company while you agonize over the lack of answers. Brienne asks Catelyn that if she shares those dreams of vengeance for her dead loved ones, if she wants to ride to King's Landing and kill Cersei for Ned, why is she trying to hold Brienne back from Stannis? Is it because of his claim? And once more we come back to Catelyn as the voice of conventional wisdom in Westeros, struggling to find a singular truth among the competing ones she has been told. She was taught that good fights evil, a simple call to action to which Brienne is responding when she declares she will ride off to kill Stannis because he did something evil, and Catelyn believes that Renly's death was evil in itself regardless of Stannis' claim. Yet she also believes that the gods make kings, not the swords of men. She believes there is an immutable law, an immortal gold standard, Godhead, next to which our petty violent bullshit is judged. What if Stannis is king by that standard? What matters more? This is a really remarkable moment, I think, a really authentic scene, because even as Catelyn and Brienne keep the discussion focused on what Brienne, the individual, can and should do now, they wind up addressing the whole of the societal collapse they are inhabiting. It can't help but be any other way. To establish their next steps as individuals, to forge a new relationship, to decide where Brienne's loyalty should lie, they have to critically examine how Westeros got here, how one is to perform one's values in such a world. They're dealing with competing conceptions of justice. Is good that which goes out to fight evil regardless of the cost? Or is good that which maintains order and peace regardless of what evil is up to? And what if those two ideas come into conflict? Catelyn appears to believe that Stannis' rightful place atop the divinely ordained pyramid might outweigh the individual <laughs> horror of Renly's death. Now, it does not occur to Catelyn to critically investigate the foundations of that divinely ordained pyramid, even though Rob has arguably rebelled against it. Stannis is no Joffrey or Eris, but as Brienne immediately points out, Eris also had a claim to be the rightful king. At what point does that not mean anything anymore? Well, it stops meaning anything when people decide it stops meaning anything. <laughs> rightful king is not a meaningless statement. It is, however, a fluid one. It can change. I think it gets back to something that our guest, Clint, oh, who's definitely not a Blackfire spy, of course, in response council, was saying when we did our episode on Clash Kings Tyrion 2, the concept of the rightful king is one that is entirely dependent on the eye of the beholder. Does the illegal and unethical conduct of the sovereign negate the rightful aspects of the claim? I mean, theoretically, it can in the American system, though only once in practice, sort of. Does Eris's evil conduct in murdering Rickard and Brandon Stark and breaking the feudal contract negate his rightful claim to the Iron Throne? Well, we did talk about this back in episode three, and we came down to the answer of a qualified yes. But now let's get uncomfortable and turn that question on Stannis. Does his use of his shadow baby to kill Renly negate his claim to a crown due to how evil and unethical that was? Now, there's a lot of debate about this as we talked about in Catelyn 3 and 4 over and over again. It's a great discussion. Go back and listen to those episodes if you not have listened to those. In Brienne's mind, though, you know, Stannis never had the rightful claim to begin with, as her conception of a rightful king is that Renly was the rightful king because he was the best possible candidate, because he was, quote unquote, good. Now, of course, we're not talking objectively here. We're talking perceptions, which is really important when we're talking about these chapters. These are all coming from the perspective of an individual point of view character. So this is not objectively the author of Godlike standing up there and saying, yes, Renly was good. Yes, Brienne is right here. Yes, Stannis was evil here, as Catelyn is saying. We, you know, have interrogated this concept of Renly's goodness and came down to the idea that a lot of what seemed good about Renly was mostly at the surface level, as you were pointing out. What I'm getting at ultimately is that good, 
rightful. Those are concepts that we ascribe meaning to as individuals, as Catelyn and Brienne ascribe meanings to, as meaning to. But for Catelyn, those conceptions of kingship are not just sourced to their own individual preferences. They are grounded within a larger ideological framework of what it means to be the king and how the how things are actually supposed to work here. Things are supposed to work in Westeros, right? And she's having trouble reconciling how things are supposed to work with how they're actually working. As Catelyn can't resolve her faith in the system with abuses of power, Brienne can't follow her statements that the gods don't care about men any more than kings care about peasants to its logical conclusion. No gods, no kings, no masters. None of these power structures are worth the labors of unusually decent people like Brienne or even flawed and well-intentioned people like Catelyn. This is such a bittersweet scene because here we have two women who have always hovered on the fringe of power, who have only been brought together by an utter failure of power, and they come so close to the conclusion that the system has failed them, but they can't quite bring themselves to do it. All Catelyn can do is tell Brienne to serve Rob. Just pick a new one. It's like the broken man speech. Another lord shouts that you are his now. It's musical chairs. All Brienne can do is look for another perfect vessel to fill with devotion. She never wonders if the whole idea of my life for yours, O sacred one, is a bad idea to begin with. Fantasy from Terry Pratchett to Fury Road has borne the message that, quote, evil begins when you begin to treat people as things. And Brienne really does think of herself more as a shield for others than a person in her own right. And this can inspire great heroism, of course. We see that throughout the series. But it leaves her own internal needs and damage, her personal fears and desires, unattended and festering behind her high walls. Going off to kill Stannis is not dealing with that pain, those contradictions, the human heart in conflict with itself. It's just a way to die and leave a simple song behind. Instead, Catelyn says Brienne should fight for the living. Protect someone. That's a better legacy than the stories and songs. Don't just follow Renly down the drain of death. But Brienne doesn't want to fight for Rob, because she doesn't know him. And this opens back up the gap between the two women that Catelyn has been trying to bridge here. At the end of the day, Brienne belonged to a different faction in the Civil War breaking Westeros apart, and that decision on her part has not vanished just because Renly is dead now. It meant something to her. She wants it back. Serving someone she doesn't know, doesn't love, just because you, know, you gotta serve someone? That's no more meaningful to her than killing Stannis to please Renly's ghost. Brienne wants to be more than a cog. She does not want to be alienated from her labor. She is not satisfied merely fulfilling Catelyn's conventional wisdom rulebook for how society is supposed to go. Of course not. Brienne of Tarth is a woman wearing mail and wielding a sword. <laughs> Fitting in in Westeros is not exactly her thing. So instead, she wants to serve Catelyn because Catelyn saved her life when she did not have to. This act of grace, like Catelyn reaching out to give what comfort a touch could give, is more than Brienne ever got from her comrades. And that's what sticks with Brienne. Not the larger movements of the war, not the overarching questions of where power comes from and how to use it and who's the king. It's being treated like a human being worth saving, someone to be plucked from the fire of the war, life preserved amidst endless, hopeless death. Brienne wants to repay that mercy with service. Catelyn protests that she only saved Brienne because she knew Brienne was innocent, but inside, she knows that's not quite true. She saved Brienne because she could not bear the thought of being alone with the knowledge of what happened in that tent. She could not bear to stand alone like a solitary willow bending to the wind as war and death devour all Westeros whole. 
She saved Brienne for the same reason she reaches out to comfort her now. In the face of an uncaring universe that will kill you, human beings need each other, in spite of all we do to each other, especially because of all we do to each other. Catelyn's family has been scattered to the winds. She must find a new one, and she found Brienne. Now Brienne finds her, and they stand alone together. They are trying to recreate the sacred bonds that are supposed to hold their society together. I will give my life for yours in exchange. You will give me food and board and not ask anything of me that would dishonor me. Brienne's oath to Catelyn, it feels like the ideal feudal contract, one that isn't just words and promises that could be broken on a whim. You know, I've always looked at the spectrum of knighthood in A Song of Ice and Fire as Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch on one side and Brienne of Tarth and Beric Dondarrion on the other. The Gregors and Amorys will break their nightly vows on behalf of vows to fealty to their overlords time and time again. Brienne and Beric often break their bonds of fealty to their overlords on behalf of their nightly vows. And the question that we're supposed to ask is which is the better thing? And of course, the better thing is Brienne and Beric Dondarrion. But it's important to note that Brienne is not the norm for knights. And to be honest, to be fair, neither is Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch. Brienne works as a true knight, the, the ideal to aspire to. Except, of course, she's not technically a knight in the series, um, until we get to A Dream of Spring. That's why I say that Brienne's vows are a callback to this ideal where the feudal bond is supposed to be. She isn't making precisely a knightly vow to Catelyn here. It's an act to do good works and deeds via fealty to someone who is good. Because as we all know, Catelyn's only done, what did I say during the synopsis? Only done three things wrong in her entire life. I wonder how high that list will be by the time we get to the Red Wedding itself. <laughs> but yeah, it's not even just the specific words of the oath. It's how these words are being tr used to try to cross the gap between their understandings of who they're supposed to be. Like Catelyn believes her battlefield is motherhood. Brienne believes her battlefield is, well, a battlefield. But their belief in a world that works is what holds them together and produces this oath. And from this act of empathy, you could imagine building a society that works. But so much gets in the way. So much weighs it down. This feudal bond is forged with the mutual recognition that Catelyn will allow Brienne to kill Stannis in order to save Rob's life. So the war runs through this brief moment of peace. Catelyn thinks to herself how often she saw Ned accept a man's oath of fealty and wonders what he would think of this. But if he were here, she wouldn't have to be doing this in the first place. If Ned and Renly were still around, Catelyn and Brienne wouldn't have to pick up the pieces of the world that broke with them, wearing them like Brienne wears the fragments of Wendell Manderley's clothes. They don't fit. The world is broken. But the pieces are all they have, and all they can do is try to put them back in order together. Hmm. Real life, am I right? That's mm -hmm. like, I mean, there's, there's sadly uh, true. We're all just mosaics, folks. Yeah, and and I think like we were, it gets back to something we were talking about at the beginning of this episode about how Catelyn's journey in this chapter feels especially authentic, and Brienne's journey does as well. And this is what makes the beauty of George's writing so much so present to me in in this chapter specifically because. We, they are existing in a broken world of Westeros in this fantasy realm with knights and high ladies and small folk and peasants. And it might feel like the world is distant from ours. I've been reading Dune, as you guys might know, recently, and that world feels very distant from ours. But and but A Song of Ice and Fire, I think, like it gets at the heart of something we talk about over and over again here on the Nauticast podcast, in that it feels authentic and realistic to our own struggles in terms of what the characters are experiencing in the novels and how they have to pick up all of the broken pieces and all the sadness that flows out from 
the terrible events that have happened to them because all of us here, every single person watching and listening, Emmett and I both, we've all experienced tragedy in our lives. We've all had to pick up the pieces and gone on in our own lives. And it's, it's hard, but Brianne at this point seems to be doing the right thing and is working to defend the living. And that's a good thing. But there is that issue, though, of how the rest of the world is reacting to the broken pieces. And we have to get to back to the nitty gritty politics and warfare of Westeros, which is a does not have like the same hallmarks of poetry and wonderfulness that we have exhibited here between Catelyn and Brienne. Perfectly said, sir. We zoom out the camera. Catelyn approaches the Tully Castle of Riverrun, cradle of her birth, foundation of her identity and worldview that are now under siege. Riverrun is what Catelyn thinks about when she thinks about the good life, about a world that makes sense to her. From the very beginning of her POV, when she said, I don't like this Winterfell Godswood, I liked the Riverrun <laughs> one. She began the book here, staring at Rob's new crown, hoping the best for him. And what's changed since she left? Well, she saw another beloved young king struck down by a shadowy avatar of death, one that explicitly threatens Rob as well. And so when she returns to Riverrun, Rob is gone and has been replaced by dead bodies, hanging from the walls like banners, standing in for her disillusionment, her despair, her fear about what's coming for Rob. Now these are Lannister bodies. The sight of them brings joy to her men, just like news of the Battle of Oxcross, which left many Lannister corpses behind. But just as Catelyn took no heart from that victory, knowing that it will turn to ash in your mouth when winter comes for you, all she sees when she looks at those bodies is escalation, vengeance, blood for blood, that will claim her daughters. And I, and I just have to say, I'm, I'm fascinated by the reaction of Catelyn's party as they're approaching River Run here. What are they exactly are they thinking? Why are they laughing? Why are they joking? Are they showing off to each other in kind of this Theon Greyjoy kicking the head of Garrett's display of machismo? Maybe. Are they so desensitized by the war that they look at these hangmen and have a sociopathic reaction to death? Or are these the boys who have never really seen a real battle and are compensating for not having experienced the Whispering Wood and the Battle of the Camps and the Battle of Oxcross. I, and I know it's it's a really small moment in this chapter, but it really it really stuck in my craw as I was rereading this chapter. I mean, I don't really have a point or an answer here. I only have questions. And I think that's, again, it's getting back to the authentic human like reaction response to something like this happening. Because I mean, what would be your reaction to seeing a bunch of bodies hanging from the bannermen, from, from, the, from the house that you grew up in from your entire life, of your enemies, of course? I, I would feel such a such a bizarre combination of emotions. I'd probably feel sick from just the sheer combination, you know what I mean? And I think you hit the nail on the head with them showing off for each other. Because I imagine if it was like just Wendell Manderley, just one guy with Catelyn, he probably wouldn't say a thing. But because it's a bunch of them, well, then they got to show off for each other. And maybe every single one of them is horrified on the inside, but none of them can admit that to each other. And that's the, that's the kind of the system they're locked in. That's the relationship to each other that they have. They can't conceive of another one. Catelyn rides ahead of them to the castle, all joy in her homecoming lost. Before George lets her and us know what's up with the bodies, he drops this bittersweet moment. Edmure rode out from the castle to meet her, surrounded by three of her father's sworn men. Great-bellied Sir Desmond Grail, the master at arms, Utherides Wayne, the steward, and Sir Robin Ryger, Riverrun's big bald captain of guards. They were all three of an age with Lord Hoster, men who had spent their lives in her father's service. Old men, Catelyn realized. And you get the sense that Catelyn is realizing this for the first time. Everyone she knows got old without Catelyn realizing it, including Catelyn herself. When did that happen? She can't say. All she can say is that it did. Once more, Catelyn is reckoning with how time's flow is all-powerful 
yet imperceptible. An invisible force easy to ignore that crushes mountains and people alike. As she said earlier, she is caught between yesterday's triumphs and tomorrow's trials. So where is the present moment in that? It's gone, because the destabilization of grief has clued her in to what might be the ultimate contradiction of the human condition. We live in a perpetually evolving present. The past is inaccessible, the future unknowable. And so many philosophies and self-help books come down to just trying to live in the moment. But what's the moment, exactly? As with Zeno's paradox, you can't ever access a pure unit of time. You just keep subdividing it. It's gone as you conceive of it. The space humanity actually inhabits is not the present. It's a projected stew of memories, impressions, half-formed thoughts, fears, desires, and disasters. We know too much for the bliss of ignorance, but not enough for the bliss of serenity. We are half-formed, part beast and part angel, and will never be at peace. The shadow on a wall isn't just power, it's everything. It's about brushing up against the limits of awareness, which is what Catelyn is doing throughout this chapter, trying to breach Brienne's walls, trying to get Hoster to recognize her, trying to imagine Ned's eyes in his skeleton. She doesn't have the power to do these things, but she can try. The way we try to get around the limits of awareness, the fact that we really can't know anything for sure about anything, especially ourselves, is by creating rules to live by. Invisible walls, invisible laws, the projected self-image we call society. We see it right away when Brienne is trying to get through this conversation with these river lords that she doesn't know. How do these people get around the fact of Renly's death that they think she might have committed? This intense awkwardness of this specter of mortality and political alienation. How do we get through this? By being honorable. By being polite. And Brienne blushes because she's not used to it. But these are the rules of the game. This is how we get past this stuff. This is how we keep going, even so we don't just kind of collapse into a corner and weep. But what do the rules of the game have to say about those other bodies? The ones hanging from River Run, not Storm's End. Well, they were envoys. And Catelyn is shocked. The rules have been shattered. And we shattered them. The rules I love so much. My family shattered them. Ah, but you see, they were false envoys. It was Tyrion who broke the rules by sending in jailbreakers under a peace banner. And this gets at the political complications of trying to keep these rules going in a Westeros at war. As soon as one side breaks taboo, the other side feels an incentive to do the same. Because what's the use in unilaterally disarming? We can say it's the right thing to do until we're blue in the face. But doesn't it amount to vulnerability? If the other side is cutting corners and you don't, aren't you screwed? Kinda. I mean, it definitely feels that way. You can understand why Edward does it. At the same time, though, I'm reminded of how Edmure is conducting a mini version of what Tywin did in the Riverlands. Remember in the Game of Thrones, Tywin had Masha Heddle's body strung up at the end for the crime of being present at Tyrion's abduction in, in Catelyn's fifth chapter in A Game of Thrones. It was a mockery of justice back then, and Edmure, to, his, to be incredibly fair, because we're very fair in this episode, Edmure at least hanged actual criminals. But I was thinking about this, like leaving the bodies up there does what? What what is that, what is what exactly does it do? It's it's not like the Lancers are going to send another diplomatic mission to River Run anytime soon. Yeah, that fig leaf is done. There's no more envoys coming to River Run, and there's no envoys returning to King's Landing. The display of corpses and death, I think, is Edmure kind of compensating. He was out wenching. Now he needs to look like a leader again. And what's the best way to demonstrate his leadership? Well, hang bodies up there. Violence, and there's a bit of a. 
and I hate to say this about Emir because I love the, the guy so much, but there's a bit of a Theon feel from two weeks ago. Remember we did Theon's third chapter where he's committing an act of violence to, quote, fit the mold of leadership? Now, we know that Edmure's dad, Hoster, wasn't above a public display of violence to prove a political point, as Lord Goodbrook found to his detriment and during Robert's Rebellion. So it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating scene for me in a number of levels. And I think that, too, we have to talk about the rules of warfare and also the rules of what it actually means in actuality, what the ideal is, and what it means in actuality. The, the rules of how you commit violence and what violence counts as within the rules and what doesn't. And sometimes that line feels like it makes sense and sometimes that line feels completely arbitrary. And what we're seeing with these envoys is the rules being exposed as a trick. That, it, you know, the envoys, the sign that we're going to have like some peace and keep some kind of respect between each other. That was just a disguise worn by murderers. But our belief in those rules is what makes them real because the human understanding of what reality is, of what power is, that's the true battlefield. Edmure was not the instigator here, but as Jamie points out later in the book, Tyrion was acting to save his brother. Would Rob do any differently? Who's to say? It's not the political or personal motivations on their own that cause disaster. It's the combination of the two. It's the inflation of personal needs to a continental scale. It's the demand that your internal turmoil be externalized onto the landscape, that the very rivers and trees and people around you must orbit your presence and deal with your bullshit. The protagonist delusion that haunts good works every bit as much as evil ones. Our inability to recon reconcile our internal conflicts makes it impossible to even conceive of reconciling our external conflicts. One of the great struggles in, in human history for societies and individuals is what's more important, the body or the soul? Which do you free first? Which one will resolve the other? Catelyn is struggling with that in this chapter and ultimately <laughs> she doesn't know. It's hard not knowing the answer to that question, right? It's It's the... It's our great glory and our great sadness, I think, is, is mm -hmm. how George might put it. And I think that's really powerful stuff that George integrates into this chapter and into A Song of Ice and Fire in total. But now we get to talk about and we get to go away from all of Emmett's wonderful poetry and all of the wonderful things he's been saying all along. We appreciate everyone saying all the nice things about Emmett in the, in the chat. It's, it's awesome. And we get to get down to the dirty and the gritty. We get to get into the war shit, baby. We're back on the battlefront. And I think one of the pleasures of this chapter is kind of rediscovering a forgotten part of the War of the Five Kings. Is that a pleasurable part of the chapter? I don't know. Maybe whatever. It's Edmure Tully versus Tywin Lannister, the battle that absolutely decides the fate of the War of the Five Kings and that nobody remembers. What people most remember about this part of the war is what happens in A Storm of Swords when Rob and Brendan return from the Westerlands. But the strategic situations for the Lancers and Tullys, coupled with their battle plans, is a vital part in understanding what's to come for the story, both in the Blackwater and the Red Wedding. So let's talk about the strategic picture. And you can't see it, but I have a nice big map here in our document notes, which you can see as a as a patron when it comes out next week. So with Tywin Lancer booking it westward from Hall in hopes of making it out to the Westerlands, he is hoping to confront Robb Stark and defeat him as Robb Stark is despoiling the Westerlands. So let's pause and broaden out briefly. Let's look at the Lancer position first. In short, it's bad. Tyrion is still at King's Landing with a small force of sellswords, mountain clansmen, and gold cloaks. Stafford Lannister's army is routed with Stafford himself dead. Presumably his son David is able to rally some of his army back together after Rob leaves the Westerlands as we see some of that army reforming and besieging River Run. 
And that leaves Tywin at Harrenhal with his army and no good options as to where to go. And as we covered last week in Arya 8, Tywin can't run the risk of letting Robb Stark run amok out in the Westerlands or face the desertion of his army and the loss of his political authority over his banner lords. So Tywin moves his army out of Harrenhal. At the very least, his army outnumbers Edmure's army, but the exact size of his army is unclear. Let's ballpark it at 15 to 22,000 men or so. Let's talk about the Tully situation. It's... It's okay. When we last checked in with the Riverlands military dynamic way back in the Game of Thrones, Catelyn 8 and Tyrion 7, it was pretty bad with the Riverlords scattered and defeated. But with the entry of the Northmen into the Riverlands and the defeat of Jaime Lannister's host in and around River Run, they're in a fairly strong position, all things considered. However, as we talked about back in Catelyn 1, Edmure petitioned Rob to allow his Riverlords to go back to their homes to defend them against Lannister marauders. And of course, Robert reluctantly agreed to allow the Riverlords to go home, and some, like the Derry Boyd, were unfortunately murdered by Grey Clicking as they were picked off kind of one by one. But now, with the Lannister army days away from forcing an attempt into the Riverlands to get into the Westerlands, Edmure is bringing his Riverlords and their hosts back together for battle. Now, this is something that kind of escaped my attention before coming onto this chapter and rereading it, but the reason Edmure can do this, bring his army together, is that we know from Arya's clash chapters, Amory Lorch, Gregor Game, and the Bloody Mummers have all returned to Harrenhal, so they're not out there raiding into all the lands and reaving and ravaging around there. So the lands of the various Riverlords are not under direct threat at the moment from Lannister Reavers. Still, Edmure counts that he has about 11,000 soldiers to face Tywin's army. Additionally, Edmure has an additional force in Roose Bolton that is advancing on Harrenhal from the north. That cannot possibly go wrong, right? Wrong. <laughs> so let's talk about Edmure's strategic plan here as he's talking with Catelyn. It's easy to reduce Edmure's plan to block the Lancer advance into the Ruins because that in and of itself is not a good plan. It's dumb. But there's a degree of complexity in what Edmure's proposing that I hadn't really put together until doing this reread. The basic gist is, as Edmure explains to Catelyn, is to wait for Tywin's army to depart Harrenhal and then have Roose Bolton attack and seize Harrenhal from Tywin as Edmure blocks the main Westerman host trying to make its press its way into the Westerlands. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the tactics that Edmure employs come Catelyn's sixth chapter in Clash of Kings, but suffice to say that Edmure chooses key terrain to use as a force multiplier to mitigate the size disparity, the size disparity between his and Tywin's army. All the same, Harrenhal would be retaken and Tywin would be caught out in open terrain between River Run, Harrenhal, and the Blackwater Rush, cut off from any line of retreat or supply. And then when Robb Stark returned triumphant from the west, he, Edmure Roosebolton, would then descend on the stranded Lannister army to destroy the remnants of Tywin's host. Seems like a pretty good plan. It's not a bad plan, but to use a very old adage, no good battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Roose Bolton is going to take Harrenhal and Edmure will repel Tywin at the fords, but the Lannisters did have an out to the south and the Reach host. I think, I don't know, I, I think it's easy to look at Edmure and think that he was a moron for not thinking that Tywin would turn south and link up with the Tyrells, but just consider that the Tyrells are still at this time sworn enemies sworn enemies of the Lannisters, and if Edmure thought about the Tyrell army at all, sitting pretty at Bitterbridge, he likely thought that they would fight any Lannister coming for them, any Lannister army coming for them. Additionally, no one besides Tyrion and the small council knew that Littlefinger was on his way to the Trolls to bring them into marriage alliance with the Lannisters. So I think that's kind of gets over the broad overview of what Edmure's plan is, but I don't think that we can just simply evaluate what Edmure is doing here in a purely, hmm, the military and strategic situation of the Riverlands and what Edmure Tully is doing and what Tywin is doing, because it all has to be evaluated within the context of Catelyn and Edmure's relationship and the conversation in which this whole tactical and strategic plan flows from. 
That's very clearly and cleanly laid out, and I think you make great points that really Edmure's smartest move is his, you know, the, the part of the battle plan that you don't really see because we're focused on what Edmure's doing at Riverrun with his plan. But cutting off Tywin is really smart. And yeah, it's not remotely on Edmure that he doesn't realize Tywin's going to like float on a bunch of barges to King's Landing. Like that's not, <laughs> that's a huge surprise to us, let alone Edmure. So that's that's definitely not on him. I think that's a great point. But yeah, these political and military maneuvers are not taking place in a vacuum. This is not a game of risk. They are filtered through the personal fears and desires of our characters. Like most adult siblings, Catelyn and Edmure inevitably drag each other back to childhood, seeing the youth inside the adult, like Crescent vis-a-vis Stannis. Catelyn says that Edmure's anger had always been a sullen, sulky thing. Always because Catelyn remembers Edmure as a child, before he had to perform manhood. She sees past the disguise, the shadow on a wall, and he cannot stand that. Rob can't stand it either. That's why he left orders for Catelyn to be sent to the twins, orders she promptly ignores because of her duty to her family. Again, we come back to the themes of the words of House Tully. Neither Rob nor Edmure's self-image has room for Catelyn. She is unwelcome in their perfect projected fantasy tableau, precisely because she keeps pointing out that it's a projection. She knows them better than that. She knows the intimacy behind the image. Edmure, however, also resents Catelyn's presence for a reason specific to him, to their relationship, and to the personal and political history of House Tully. Edmure is doing all of this to live up to his dad's reputation, yet he can't quite seem to do it. Why is that? He certainly fears that he's just incompetent, but there's more to it than that. The subtext of this conversation between Edmure and Catelyn, the source of the resentment and sorrow simmering just beneath the surface, is that Hoster raised Catelyn, the firstborn, as his heir, not Edmure. Every time Catelyn thinks about Hoster, he's teaching her something, taking her somewhere, instilling lessons in her she's carried throughout her adult life. This is not merely because Hoster loved Catelyn and enjoyed her presence, though that certainly seems to have been the case. This is because Menesa Went, Hoster's wife, did not have a son that lived past infancy until Edmure. As such, for a long time, Catelyn was the heir to Riverrun. And by the time Edmure came along to be the heir, Hoster had given all his best efforts to Catelyn. One gets the sense that Edmure got the leftovers, a recycled relationship, a copy that can't sustain the illusion when set next to the real thing. Here stands Hoster Tully's heir, Edmure thinks. It's not me. It's my big sister who is now telling me that my plan is stupid and I have once more <laughs> failed to be like dad. Yeah, I mean, you get a real kind of like Theon Asha vibe between like these two characters oh, yeah. here. Of course, they love each other a lot more and they actually care for each other in a way that Asha and Theon's relationship is not in A Clash of Kings, but um, definitely kind of comes out at the end of A Dance of Dragons. And I, I agree, that's a, just a brilliant point altogether. Catelyn has the gravitas to stand in judgment of Edmure because she was the designated heir until Edmure arrived. She had received the education from her father. And that's why she's so good at politics, why she is a master at negotiation, why she is the only one who could go down to Bitterbridge to negotiate with Renly Baratheon. Edmure and um, Hoster's relationship is kind of underappreciated and underthought in the fandom. Um, I think uh, the son, he's, he's the son who was the baby of the family, and you can kind of get the sense that he was a little bit spoiled, was a little bit also kind of neglected by his father there. And I can't help but think of Edmure in contrast to characters like Tyrion and Theon with older beloved siblings and how they attempted to operate and behave with that kind of clear favoritism going on in the relationships and the father-child relationship. Edmure, I, I love him, but he just doesn't have to rely on the wits the, way, the same way that Tyrion does. 
And he's not quite the swaggering brute that Theon tries to play at in being Ironborn, but he does use sex to cover up his insecurities as we're seeing throughout this chapter. Well, we really saw this chapter, and we're going to see throughout the narrative in A Song of Ice and Fire. Edmure kind of reads like a milder version of Tyrion and Theon. He's somewhat smart. He's not a dummy. And the ladies do love Edmure. So, you know, you can see why Edmure is the way that he is. But he's still the youngest, and he still has that grounded insecurity brought on by years. He's, what, 25, 26 years old at this point in the story? So he's he's been living his entire adult life in the shadow of, really, Catelyn, and definitely in the shadow of, and definitely in the shadow of Hoster. Even as he uses sex to compensate for it, that doesn't even work on Catelyn, because Catelyn goes, oh yeah, you were getting laid, little brother, how cute. <laughs> it doesn't help. Remember how Oberyn says in A Storm of Swords that the fact that he was born third and Duran first was proof of the grace of the gods, because Duran is a steadier hand on the wheel. The Tullys, then, are the flip side of the coin. They are the proof of the capriciousness and carelessness of the gods. If Edmure had been born first and Catelyn third, this never would have been an issue. Instead, they are both split, divided from themselves and each other. Catelyn was raised to be the heir, but Edmure's birth left her on the periphery of power with all this knowledge she has nothing to do with now. She's learned just enough to know how much she's missing. Again, we are denied the bliss of both ignorance and fulfillment as human beings. We are forever caught in between. Edmure, meanwhile, gets the position of power, but he lacks what Catelyn has, that feeling of capability, the ability to see oneself as master of Riverrun in the mirror. The image and the reality, the thing in itself and the idea of the thing, are split, alienated from one another, leaving it impossible for the Tullys to be at peace. Edmure believes his battle plan will reconcile all of this. That's why he says that both the Bracken, both the Brackens and the Blackwoods agree on it. Hey, look at that. An eternal divine healed and made whole. Maybe I can fix me too. Edmure is getting ready for battle in large part just to look like the kind of guy who can get ready for battle. As McCall said last week, power becomes its own justification. It's a constant audition for fulfilling the shadow on a wall. Edmure is going to be the Lord of Riverrun any day now and is terrified that he's not going to be up for the challenge. His fears are partially grounded in reality. He did get his ass kicked by the Kingslayer, after all. But this is mostly performance anxiety, just like when he couldn't get it up that one time. Edmure is getting in his own way. The idea of who he's supposed to be is preventing him from doing what he actually should do. The image of Hoster is more present in his mind's eye than the man who was as flawed as anyone else. Catelyn points out that they have nothing to gain and everything to lose by meeting Tywin in the field. He is not coming to attack River Run. He is riding for his own lands. Fighting him guarantees that he and his reavers stay here. It could potentially make things more dangerous for the people Edmure is sworn to protect. But all the world is a stage, and Edmure is performing. Like Theon, as you were saying, he feels the need to thrust his dick in the wind and do some great deed to be remembered. <laughs> And he is responding to real political incentives, to be fair to him. He does need to keep his fractious bannerman in line after Hoster dies, which is going to be hard. He needs to prove that when he calls the banners, they will come. That means something. But it doesn't mean everything. Edmure commands Roos to take Harrenhal, and to take the men that Rob left behind to keep an eye on the phrays. The Red Wedding cannot happen without both of those things. All because Edmure conjured up a battle out of thin air for role-playing purposes. Like George is an artist on commission and Edmure is paying him to write a battle for him. 
It's about grasping for what can't be grasped, trying to get back the battle he lost, trying to get back the father he's losing, trying to be someone from the songs, set-dressing reality until it looks like the theater playing constantly in your head. Scientist and philosopher Blaise Pascal said that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. A Song of Ice and Fire fandom writer Adam Feldman said that our problem is that even when we get a taste of peace, we decide that war tastes better. And both could have been written about Edmure Tully. I, yeah, so I'm not, I, here's the point where like we have this bitter disagreement about Edmure Tully. Clearly, right? the feud we're just, begins. We're going to just going to talk about a reach to the screen and, you know, go, go toe to toe with you. I mean, it's, it's part of the issue though, if we're being totally honest, as we often are, is part of the issue that Edmure doesn't know Rob's plan here. Now, I'm not suggesting the personal isn't deeply intertwined with the political for Edmure. But if he had the knowledge of what his nephew was doing, might he have reacted accordingly? Might he have let Tywin go into the Riverlands and through the Westerlands? Now, again, like as I was saying, as I was saying, the personal is very much part of the political for Edmure here. He is very much, as he says in Catelyn's sixth chapter, tell father I have gone to fight on him. Tell him that he could be proud of his son one more time. So there's definitely a major component of that going on here. But to give Edmure a sliver of credit, he thinks he is trying to help Rob by isolating Tywin in the Riverlands so that Rob can bring his army back from the West and everyone can converge on Tywin in mass. Now, I do think you're right to suggest that a lot of that is a heaping scoop of rationalization for Edmure, but there is political and military purpose for what Edmure is doing here. Anyways, hi, I'm a member of the Edmure did only a few things wrong defense leagues. I will see you again in a, in a Storm Swords Catelyn 2. I agree. I think it's not that Edmure's plans are completely terrible. It's just I can't imagine what he thinks Rob is going to think of this. Like it's like, as Rob says, Edmure, you can't imagine I stayed in the West for plunder. And and as the Wendell Manderley says in this chapter, you know nothing gets a Lannister running like a threat to gold. So people are kind of independently figuring out that that Rob's plan is what it is. But you know what? I'm being very hard on our boy here. Let's flip the coin around. While Edmure sows the seeds of destruction with one hand, he kindles the embers of hope with the other. When Catelyn demands to know who all these other people are running all around their father's castle, Edmure responds, My people. They were afraid. You see why Catelyn has my favorite POV chapters in The Clash of Kings. This is a tossed-off, incidental moment, utterly ancillary to both the larger movements of the plot and the overall arc of our POV character, and yet it's one of my favorite lines in the whole story. The casual nature of it is key to what makes it so great. Edmure doesn't even get why this should be a big deal. And it really shouldn't be. It's only remarkable in context. It's only remarkable because the bar has fallen so low in a world at war. It's not that Edmure has taken a step forward, it's that everyone else stepped back. He's not going above and beyond, he is literally fulfilling his duty. Protection is what lords are supposed to offer their people. It's what they're supposed to give back in exchange for, you know, not having to work for a living. You labor in the farms and the forests, the rivers and the mines, and you give up a chunk of what is produced by your labor so that we, the Tullys, don't have to. In exchange for that, we will protect those farms and forests and rivers and mines. We will protect you and your partners and your children with our lives. Yet where are they now, these shields of men? Where are the valiant protectors that both the laws and the stories say should be here defending their people? They are absent, or worse. Some are not content with merely neglecting the small folk and are preying on them. As Mira tells Bran, sometimes the knights are the monsters. It turns out it was all a con 
This whole system Catelyn believes in. It was a rope ladder dangling out of reach, up to a treehouse that you helped build and now you can't access. The songs and stories lie to you, not to protect you, but so that you don't notice that all the wealth and power is going one way in this relationship, and all that's coming back the other way is fire and blood. This is not something that can be safely locked away in the past, covered up with the gauzy gossamer veil of high fantasy. Our modern finance capitalism is, to a large degree, a house of cards that can collapse just by looking at it too closely. We talk about economic crises in terms of bubbles bursting. Well, is that not also how we talk about people when their worldview falls apart, that my bubble burst? I thought I was investing in my future. Instead, I was being drained dry. I was being treated like a resource, like I belonged to another human being to make them wealthy. And that's the great ambiguity of Edmure's statement here. On the one hand, he is doing what so few lords in Westeros are willing to do, use their power to shield people. He's doing it because they were afraid. He looked in their eyes and saw fear. He empathized, just like how he cares about the men Jamie killed, remembering their specific names. He saw human beings suffering and realized that he had the power to do something about it. And he did it. What more can you ask of someone in power? It's an act of heroism so pure, it, it, it brings tears to my eyes. The essence of grace. I was in need, and you took me in. But wait a minute, why are they in need? Why are they afraid? Because Edmure means to give battle. If he just let Tywin pass, they would not be in danger. The threat that Catelyn notices, that these people could spell starvation under siege, well, that only constitutes a threat in the first place if there could be a siege, if Edmure insists on giving battle to Tywin. Edmure is heroically keeping people safe from a problem he is causing. Why not just avoid causing the problem in the first place? Because of the shadow on the wall. Because of the need to look like, feel like, be like the man you want to be. That man needs a battle to win, so Edmure created one for him. That's what's putting his people in jeopardy here. I think George wrote this scenario as he did to demonstrate why even the good lords aren't good enough to bring lasting justice. Edmure as a basic animal in Eden, an individual untethered by any institution or sense of shame, is driven by empathy, humanity, and love. Bless him. But if you filter that need for love through power, if you put it in the context of our institutions, what you get is a disaster. You get a battle that doesn't even need to happen. My people... They were afraid. But what makes them your people to begin with? Why have we arranged things so that their livelihoods depend on your whims if you're nice that day? There ought to be a world where we can do more than pray for a kind master. There ought to be a world where we guarantee our mutual security and dignity. And that is not Edmure Tully's world. He is bumping up against the border of how good he can be within his worldview, how far it can take him, and no further. He can conceive of protecting these people from Tywin, and good for him, but he cannot conceive of liberating them from himself. And I think that is the issue, is that there's a blinders, there are blinders set on people who are operating within this noble class of Westeros, and not just the noble class of Westeros, because this does expand out to the real world as well, that they can only see one aspect of it, but they can't actually see that the problem is intrinsic to the entire society to begin with, and that maybe that society is not worth propping up ultimately. And I, I think with Edmure, it's, it's, I think it's very easy to just take the line at face value, but I'm glad you deconstructed it because it does need a bit of deconstruction. I do agree that there is... 
I agree. I partially agree that there is no need for battle here uh, in in this in this chapter. I think the issue the issue is is one that kind of comes up, and it's something that Martin has talked about when it comes to warfare itself. And then Martin has talked about that he was a protester against the Vietnam War. People have interpreted Song of Ice and Fire as an anti as anti war novels. I, I think there is a, as a bit of nuance in that. But one of the things that, that George has also talked about is that in the event of a World War II situation, he would have fought against a person like Hitler. And I guess the question I have for you, and maybe this is something we could table for a later discussion, is what do you do when you have an Adolf Hitler? What do you do when there's a Time and Lannister heading directly for your people here? Edmure can't change the world. I mean, I think he definitely has blinders on for the world as, as, a, as a whole. But I think you have to also ask the question of what he's supposed to do when he can't change society, but he does have a monster aiming right for him and his people. I think that's, you know, definitely a justifiable point that, you know, Edmure has to, he, he doesn't have good options and he has to, you know, pick the best one available and keep the most people alive he can. And I think that's definitely true. I think, you know, thinking about the World War II example, I just think about you know, I think about stuff like Operation Paperclip, and I think about all the ways in which, like, the possibility for a really better world after World War II, a lot of them really just didn't happen. And I think that's not because we shouldn't have beaten Hitler, or because Hitler wasn't that bad a guy, or any such nonsense. It's because we told ourselves that because we're fighting Hitler, we must be great, and there must be no problems with how we're doing things, and we have nothing to learn, and the fact that the Nazis learned how to learn to race science from America is not a problem at all, and we don't have to think about that. That it's, it's not that you shouldn't go out and fight evil. It's that you shouldn't assume that just because you're fighting evil, that means you're good. I think that's that's my kind of takeaway. I, I think it's a I think it's a really good takeaway. And I absolutely agree with it. One hundred percent that just because we are fighting a monster doesn't mean that we can't do both monstrous actions and become monstrous ourselves. I think that's that's very important. Well said, sir. Yeah, agreed. But so <laughs> Catalan and Edmure reconcile as best they can. A reassurance and a kiss on Edmure's cheek to let him know that the reassurance is genuine, that the inside matches the outside. You, you cross that border as best you can. Only then can Catelyn take her pilgrimage to the decaying godhead of River Run and all the lives that have run like rivers through it, their father, Hoster Tully. He is a strong man and proud in Catelyn's memories. A rock-solid foundation like the castle amidst the endless rivers of life that erode and transform everything. Catelyn repeatedly associates Hoster with the castle and the land. He is the protagonist of the Riverlands, as far as she's concerned, the center around which they all orbit. And you can see a Fisher King framework here, a spiritual understanding of the world that dovetails with Catelyn's political understanding of the world. But George is not necessarily endorsing this viewpoint. He wants us to understand that this is how Catelyn sees the world. But I think we are supposed to realize that this spiritual perspective exists to justify the political perspective. If Hoster is the castle, is the land, is the rivers, then the notion that the system needs changing seems not only dangerous, but absurd on the face of it. Rebel against Hoster Tully? That's like rebelling against the rivers themselves. <laughs> to challenge House Tully is to challenge the nature of the world itself, to invite chaos and despair. But now, this man, Hoster Tully, Catalan's father, the font of history and heritage and identity and meaning does not know who she is or why she has come. He's a mortal man after all, information temporarily embedded in rotting meat like the rest of us. Sickness can befall him like anyone else, and yet the rivers keep running. Like Renly's banners, they didn't belong to him after all. And this is what haunts Catelyn so much, not only that her strong, proud father has been, as she thinks of it, reduced to this, but that the sun keeps shining, the rivers keep running, Edmure prepares to take over, 
The gods don't seem to care. Death is something Catelyn can comprehend, now more than ever after what happened to Renly. But the way in which her father's death seems to be robbing him of what gave his life meaning, this is what Catelyn cannot bear. Flesh dies, okay, I understand that. But must my image of him die? Yes, it must. Because for all that the image of Hoster Tully is driving Edmure on, it's become a noose around the neck of the man himself. Hoster inflicted unimaginable harm on his own daughter Lysa in order to maintain that image. Family comes first, ahead of duty or honor, and Hoster forgot that. Now, at the end, the image is gone. It lives on only in Edmure's head. It's not a property of the man himself anymore. John Aaron is gone. Robert is gone. Ned is gone. That whole era that seemed to mean so much that would justify doing this to Lysa has been poured down the drain of time. And all Hoster cares about as his rivers run dry is trying to take back what he did to maintain that shadow on the wall. He thinks it wasn't worth it. He's telling himself, he's justifying himself, he's explaining to who he thinks is Lysa, I had to do it, but so clearly he knows that's wrong. He's asking for forgiveness, he knows it. This pain was hidden from the world, but it lived inside Hoster. A seed of guilt that has grown to consume him whole. What matters in the end of your life is not what you accomplished as an individual. It's what you did with the space between yourself and others. That's what lingers. Hoster realized this too late. Not only too late to redeem himself, but too late to pass it on to his children. So the truth escapes Catelyn. Both the truth about what Hoster did to Lysa, and the truth about what's important in life. The communication breaks down. You can't get beyond the limits of awareness. Hoster Tully has run out of power. What he wants is something that he finally can't have. Forgiveness. Lysa will not give it to him. And so he projects Lysa's face onto Catelyn, just as Littlefinger once projected Catelyn's face onto Lysa as they were sleeping together. We say we want the truth, but we don't. What we want is to believe. Lysa is the missing link, the middle child that would make all of this make sense. But she's not here, and she's not coming. A ghost filling the room with absence. Catelyn may be more coherent than Hoster right now, but when she tells Hoster that he has done nothing that requires forgiveness, she's not living in reality either. She looks out the window and thinks to herself that the rivers, pure and clean and endless, represent Hoster's life. But as George writes it, she is deliberately overlooking the, quote, crowded and chaotic yard full of refugees to look at the rivers. Those refugees, that's what life actually looks like. That's what life actually is. A roiling stew of need that sates itself until it can't, and then it dies. Catelyn doesn't want to look at that. She wants to look at my perfect little metaphor. I want to look at the rivers, my metaphor for life, my projection of how the world ought to be. And so father and daughter, at the end, are talking past each other, speaking different languages, unable to recognize themselves or their own faces in the mirror, all they can do is speak to the idea of each other, the person they think they're speaking to. And beyond that, all you can do is accept the mystery. I mean, it's, it's, it's that small version of shadows on a wall. Like they're not actually doing the reality. They're projecting images of who the other is onto each other with Hoster looking at Catelyn and seeing Lysa because, as we talked about, Catelyn was the favored child. Catelyn was the one who received the attention, the love, the training, the mentorship from Hoster. There was no sort of relationship like that between Hoster and Lysa, as we're going to discover very sadly and tragically at the end of A Storm of Swords. The relationship was fraught. It was angry. It was violent. It was evil the way that the things that Hoster did to Lysa Tully. Catelyn never experienced that. Catelyn had a 
fairly decent life, all things considered. And now she's looking upon her father and seeing the great man that he once was and watching him kind of fall away, kind of rot in front of her. And she's sad because she thinks that she's she's watching a great man fall. But imagine I mean, we've done this a couple of times for a Clash of Kings, but imagine Lysa being in this situation. Imagine Lysa seeing Hoster kind of fall and fall away. And kind of something I was thinking about, would Hoster, would Lysa have looked at Hoster and thought something similar to what Tyrion thinks when after he shoots Tywin with the crossbow bolt that Tywin after all did end up did not shit gold at the end of his story I have to imagine that Lysa's reaction to Hoster's death would be like good you had this coming this is who you were deep down inside a broken bitter vile man that got what he was coming that got what was coming to him now of course Lysa is not uh, 100% correct in some of her ideas ideals but that doesn't make her any less sympathetic, or at least a piteous character, especially as she becomes the end of a storm of swords. I think that's that's exactly right. She would see this as as cathartic, as the revelation of Hoster's true self, whereas Catelyn thinks the opposite. The true Hoster is gone, and it, in fact, Hoster is both of these men. And it's it's one of the unfortunate things, you know, that we sanctify people like this, and we think that makes them better, and we think to make them role models, but it doesn't really. Like I would, you know, part of me wishes that Catelyn. Wouldn't you be able to relate to your father more if you could acknowledge his weaknesses? Wouldn't that make him closer to you? Wouldn't that make him more of a person, more someone like you could actually be? Edmure's trying to be like the image of Hoster, and he can't because the image of Hoster isn't a person. It's just an image. It's got nothing to do with the man he was. It's, It's just these walls and projections we create between ourselves just makes it so much harder to get at the truth. And so this chapter builds to Ned's bones. It builds not in a plot sense, like Renly's death in Catelyn 4. It's like the whole chapter hasn't been about Ned's bones, and now here they are. It builds to them in a thematic sense. This is an unshakable image that grounds all the rest. This whole chapter has been about the borders between life and death, past and present, the singular soul and the world pulling it to pieces. But what makes Catelyn 5 so insightful, so true to life, as we've been saying, is that it neither shatters nor preserves those borders. It does both at the same time. Sometimes you can cross those borders. You can reach out to another person and share their pain. You can see the child inside the man. You can look at the natural world and see it as a reflection of you and yourself as a reflection of it. But other times, those borders hold fast. You can't undo your own aging. You can't take back actions you regret. You cannot step past the limitations and ambiguities of language to achieve unclouded communication with another person. You can't do it. Again, we are half beast and half angel, aware enough to see our cage, but not enough to escape it. And such is the human condition, and death is the only escape. If Ned Stark still exists in Violet somewhere, it's in a place his loved ones cannot reach him. All they're left with is the idea of him, the shadow on the wall. And that is extremely powerful, inspiring good deeds, large and small. It will never die like he did. But it is not, in any way, an adequate replacement for the man himself, body and soul. In book one, Ned was our protagonist, a world we lived inside, and now we're left with his bones. This is literally him, but as Catelyn thinks at a deeper level, this isn't him at all. Ned Stark was something invisible. Love briefly clarified by words and actions. The memory of warm arms around her. That's who Ned Stark is. He was a time to her as much as a person. And now that time has passed, leaving only what a person technically is. 
The idea of Hoster Tully, too, has faded from his own failing mind. Between these two scenes, Catelyn has gone from a man trembling on the brink of death to what will be left of him afterward. The bones could be Hoster's. The bones could be anyone's, as she thinks. There's nothing that makes these bones unique that makes them Ned. Again, what lingers is who we were to each other. The way in which Catelyn cannot help but look for Ned's eyes in empty sockets. Your eyes aren't going to last, but you know what lasts? Someone's need to see your eyes. Someone's need to project them. That's what lasts. The memory. Those eyes, she remembers, could be soft or hard, depending on the day. But it's the soft day, she remembers. That which made Catelyn feel protected, like the world made sense and it would be an okay place to die in one day, is gone. And she's still here, living for the dead. Tyrion sent Ned's bones, he said, as a gesture of peace and reconciliation, trying to move on from the dead, focus on healing the living. But as he did that with one hand, he sent in false envoys with the other, ensuring the conflict continues. He held back Ned's sword, and Rob will keep fighting with his sword to get that sword back. Round and round it goes, and no one sets the damn things down. The restoration of Ned's bones has not brought peace to Catelyn. It has only reminded her of what she has lost forever. What the Lannisters could never give back to her, even if they wanted to. The life in death's rearview mirror. So the escalation of violence, blood for blood until there's no one left to fight for, is guaranteed to continue. As Catelyn thinks to herself, one day I will thank them all. The chapter closes with Catelyn's wistful desire to break through the firmament and speak to her ghosts. She envies the Silent Sisters for their ability to do so. Now, of course, the Silent Sisters can't actually speak to the dead. It's a metaphor. But Catelyn can't help but project a reality, a longed-for reality, into that idea, that shadow. Nothing magical happens in Catelyn V, but the shadow of the Shadow Baby from Catelyn IV lingers, a voice whispering in the back of her mind that all these structures built on faith could come crumbling down at any moment, just as they did for Renly. And that's what it looks like to cross the border of death. You don't bring your loved ones back, as Danny learned with Drogo. All you do is bring death back with you. When George meditates on this, it, it really brings a, a sheer intensity of, of emotion in terms of like how we actually react to death, which is this thing that all of us will experience one day, both ourselves as well as those that we love in a, in a lot of cases. And I, and I think about this this chapter and about Catelyn wishing f- to actually be with Ned, not the person, not the bones that he's with, but to be with him as the person that he was in the day. I think about that in terms of events that we see throughout the the story of the Song of Ice and Fire through Ned's children. Arya asking Beric Dondarrion whether, or excuse me, Beric, Arya asking Thoris Amir whether he can bring back Ned, not seven times, just one time. Uh, this this kind of kind of filters out as well to like more arcane, more eth- ethereal things like Bran going back in time through the Weirwood Grove in Bloodraven's cave and seeing Ned there and reaching out for his father, saying "Father, Father, Father!" Like this, it, it's 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 an amazing reflection on how we as humans, how we look at death and want a restoration of death and want to have a restoration from death and want to have that life again from the people, from their loved ones, and ultimately from ourselves as well. I, I think that's one of the hard things that all of us have to encounter one day in our lives is that it's all going to end. There's all a finite place where it ends, and we're only bones ultimately. And all that's left of us is our memories. And that's a, that's a sobering way to kind of close the uh, the discussion portion of this chapter, but I think it's, it's a true and authentic way to do it and a true and authentic chapter. Really perfect summary, sir. There's just there's so many emotions going through, but I think you, you clarified them all really well there. 
So moving on to a foreshadowing and groundwork for this chapter. Roos will indeed take Harrenhal in Arya's next chapter as Edmure sets up here, but it will only be a quote bloody business for the Lannister men, as Roos takes the castle by guile with Arya's help rather than by outright battle. Yeah, this is uh, one of those things that uh, you're like, wow, we're finally like, Tywin's finally on the run. We're finally going to win, right? Harrenhal has taken Tywin Lannister and blocked from entering into the, into the Riverlands. The good guys are about to win. Nah, I'm sorry. And in fact, the good guys, as we are going to find out when Roose Bolton takes Harrenhal, are not actually that good. As we were saying before, sometimes the people who are fighting against monsters can also be monsters ourselves. Themselves. Exactly right. Ourselves. <laughs> Either way, all of us, we're all monsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of Roos, his Frey marriage, which we learn about for the first time in this chapter, becomes very important indeed come the Red Wedding and the northern half of A Dance with Dragons, which revolves in large part around the Bolton Frey alliance. At this point, though, there is no indication that a Lannister alliance is in the works with these families. Helmin Tallhart has been there to keep an eye on the Freys, preventing them from making any such deal. And anyway, the war has not turned against Rob yet in such a way for that to make political sense for Lord Walder. So I think Roose is marrying a Frey woman. Probably He's probably just making a smart alliance with a powerful house in this new joint kingdom. At most, I think he's thinking, hey, wouldn't it be nice that if I controlled <laughs> the bridge? Wouldn't it be nice if I had the ability to deny the Northern Cavalry their bridge home if I felt like it? I think Roose is thinking that far and no further at this point. What about you? I think there there's definitely an element of that. I think, too, you can look at what Bruce Bolton does in marrying a Frey woman as attempting to replicate what his liege lord, this Rob, is doing. He's the one that's actually marrying a Frey girl, not the one who's going to be breaking the marriage contracts we're going to find with Rob, uh, technically at the end of A Clash of Kings, but if we find out in A Storm of Swords, Catelyn's Catelyn too. I, I also think it's interesting, too, when you look at Bruce Bolton and possibly see him uh, also maybe replicating something along the lines of Southern ambitions in kind of a smaller way uh, because Roose Bolton is a secondary house. The Boltons are a secondary house to the Starks. He can't marry the daughter of a of House Tully. No, that's that's for the Starks. But he can marry a powerful, overmighty vassal in the form of the phrase. And then we have uh, Martin Rivers. We have him talking in this chapter about Rob feeding Stafford Lannister's heart to Grey Wynn. And I was thinking about this, and I think perhaps this might have been the seed for the White Harbor phrase later in A Dance with Dragons to claim that Rob and the rest of the Northmen turned to wolves and started killing everyone. That's why they had to put them down because Rob was a savage beast, right? Guys, you guys are believe me when I'm Boo. saying it's correct. Boo, yeah, wrong. That's a great example of like the kind of the, the two sides of the coin with propaganda that we also saw with, with uh, Lancel. Like in this chapter, you know, the, the story about Rob feeding Stafford Lannister's heart to Grey Wind, that's kind of like, you know, that's pumping up the Stark side. They like that. It's part of the songs that makes them feel awesome for fighting with Rob. But by the time we get to a dance with dragons, Rob associated with wolves is negative propaganda. It's being used by his enemies. So, you know, that's propaganda is a sword without a hilt, is what I'm saying. <laughs> there's there's no safe way to wield reputations. We saw that with Stannis. You know, he sent out the true letter about the Lannisters and their twin sis, but it came right back to bite him in the ass when they just made up their own rumor instead. Mm-hmm. It always works for the way for propaganda. Uh, little thing here. Um, I don't know if this is actually true or not, but I think we see potentially the seeds for the Valencar prophecy with Catelyn saying that she wants to put her hands around Cersei's throat until her face goes white. Really um, strong words on Catelyn's part. So as we actually know, this is actually uh, for you guys who are interested in more of the meta side of things. George didn't actually have the Valencar prophecy, at least in mind because he when he was writing A Feast for Crows originally that was part of the story that he ended up rewriting to include the Valencar prophecy but I think it's it's possible that George went back to this Catelyn chapter saying oh wait a minute I've got this I can utilize in order to kind of create this Valencar prophecy of the Valencar wrapping the, the hands around Cersei's throat and, uh, and, and killing her so I, I'm not sure if that's entirely what George kind of is basing what happens with the Valencar prophecy in Cersei's chapters in A Feast for Crows but I think it's a strong possibility 
I think that's a, that's a, definitely a very interesting connection. Yeah, I think George probably does, you know, go back and troll for imagery because he wants to keep this kind of imagery coherent and keep things. He wants to like give the appearance of setup, even if it's not always directly setup. You know what I mean? He wants to make these things look look like like linked together. And I am curious that yeah, even the the Valencar prophecy specifically is on the table at this point. I'm curious if he had Jamie killing Cersei in some form at at, at this point in mind. Maybe he did, and he's setting that up. You know, who knows. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I think, like, Jamie was never going to be a POV until George decided he was going to be a POV, but he planned sure. to unpack him a little bit more. And Cersei, the same way, too. He never planned for her to be a POV until he's like, hey, I, I need her to be a POV in King's Landing. But that's all for a later essay at some point. Um, Brienne in this chapter says that Robert wasn't the rightful king because Jamie Lannister murdered the rightful king. And I think this is intended to set the character for shouting for a number of Brienne and Jamie's interactions in A Storm of Swords, especially the one I think is from Jamie's second chapter in Storm, where Brienne will tell Jamie that Ares was bad and cruel. No one has ever denied that he was still the king, crowned, anointed, and you had sworn to protect him. Which then, of course, very helpfully foreshadows Brienne and Jamie's fateful bathtub conversation where it's revealed why Jamie actually killed the king he was sworn to protect. Yes, I think that's exactly right there. That really like Brienne saying that, you know, Eris was the rightful king. Like that doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily rooted in her character. It's just important to have it because that spurs Jamie on to like have this self-reflection thing about well, what does it mean that you think Eris was the rightful king? Well, I'm going to tell you the truth about that. And so, yeah, you gradually evolve. And then that leads to Brienne's own political evolution. I think Brienne and Jamie, as many people have pointed out, just contribute to each other's arcs back and forth in some really, really interesting ways that we're going to be talking about much more in Storm of Swords. Uh, speaking of Storm of Swords, Hoster will leak more details about Lysa and her, quote, wretched stripling in that book, although not quite enough for Catelyn to put all the pieces together before it's too late. This is one of the, you know, great frustrations of Catelyn's POV, which sometimes feels a little forced for me, but mostly I think is well-grounded in that she can never quite realize that Littlefinger is the problem, <laughs> even as all the pieces are pointing to it because of because of the image, because of how she thinks about River Run and childhood and youth and innocence, and Littlefinger is, is caught up with all that. But, you know, the, the reader, I think, is gradually supposed to put the pieces together, but Catelyn can't quite do it. It's it's really brilliant. And George's editor, Angrel, talked about that George has kind of a threefold revelation strategy when mm-hmm. he does these books. And we get the backstory of what we started this whole podcast about, about the duel, the duel between Brandon Stark and, and Peter Baelish, which Catelyn thinks about back in, I can't remember, which is Catelyn's sixth chapter from A Game of Thrones, I think one, I want to say. And then we have here Hoster talking about this person who is really bad that you're not going to marry this guy, you got to put him behind. These are wretched stripe, stripling, stripling, whatever you want to put it. And that is the second part of the threefold revelation. And the third, well, it's part of the second part of the, the, the other part of it is, as you're alluding to what happens in A Storm of Swords, where, where Hoster starts talking about about Tansy and talking about the board of feasting that he gave to, uh, as as Lysa will reveal to uh, Sansa and Littlefinger at the end of A Storm of Swords, the board of feasting and Tansy that he gave to, uh, that Hoster gave to her during, uh, after she was impregnated by uh, by Littlefinger. So yeah, really sad story about this. This Lysa Tully character, I think we're going to come away feeling a lot sadder about her story. Maybe not more sympathetic, but more pityful. Pityful, that's, anyways. That's Sansa chapter of the end of Storm as a powerhouse in a lot of ways. I think it's going to be another gloriously long episode whenever we get to it, for sure. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, taking us into our discussion portion for the episode, one of the many subplots that comes up in this chapter, one of the ones that comes up at the end, is the question of Ned Stark's bones. They have now been sent from King's Landing to Riverrun. Catelyn trusts the Silent Sisters to take them from Riverrun to Winterfell so they can be put in the Winterfell crypt. But obviously, this does not happen, or at least it has not happened yet. So, the question becomes Will Ned's bones ever get home? How and when? So I think the, to kind of like start the conversation, because I know that you're going to take us home on this one, let's let's track Ned's bones about where they are 
from the Nera for basically his execution onto where onto this chapter and a little bit beyond. So at the Red Keep in Tyrion's first chapter in a Clash of Kings, Ned's head is still mounted on a spike, and Tyrion orders that head to be removed from the spike and to be kind of dispatched to the Silent Sisters. And then between that moment and Tyrion's sixth chapter in a Clash of Kings, the Silent Sisters give Ned's eyes to the crows and sew the head back onto the body with fine silver lace. The Silent Sisters then travel with Sir Cleos Frey to River Run, where they await Catelyn's return after Tyrion. <laughs> as we were saying, it's so weird. Dispatches Ned's body back as a gesture of goodwill, as he also dispatches out these Lannister red cloaks in disguise in order to kind of spring Jamie free. And as we discussed in this chapter, Catelyn then sends the bones north with Howell Mullen and the Silent Sisters to be buried under the crypt, in in the crypt under Winterfell. And then this, honestly, this is the last known spot for Ned Stark's bones here in River Run because things get real dicey up in the north. Victarion is going to take take Moat Kaelin, or has perhaps already taken it in the timeline, cutting the north off from the south, so it's unlikely that the bones made it farther than the neck, at the very least. On the journey up to the twins and the Red Wedding, Catelyn does wonder whether Hollis Mullen ended up and where he actually is. And then in A Dance with Dragons, Lady Barbary Dustin tells Theon that if the bones somehow make it into the north, her outriders will prevent them from going any farther than Barrowton. So where are the bones now and where do they go? Given that Lady Dustin mentions that they're mentions that they're probably they haven't made it that far north yet, I, it's likely they're still in the neck, possibly. And if they're there, I think it's a fair assumption to believe that Howland Reed might have possession of them. But Howland, this is interesting. We talked about this in our Grand Northern Conspiracy episode on Patreon. Howland isn't the only person in the neck right now. Mage Mormon is there. Two of her daughters are there too, and Galbert Glover is also likely in the neck. In the neck. So that begs the question as to what happens to Ned's bones come the winds of winter or and or dream of spring. Absolutely, and it's it's important because you know not because of course Ned's bones actually mean anything as Catelyn said that doesn't it doesn't you know restore peace it doesn't feel like Ned but because of what we project into it the bones are quite the potent metaphor not only for the reader who wants to see the Stark family reconciled but for the characters in universe Catelyn isn't the only one projecting into these bones Barbary Dustin is projecting too. Turns out there are some people in the North who didn't love Ned Stark all that much. They wouldn't see his bones coming home as a perfect reconciliation of the story's struggles. Barbary wants to deny us that catharsis in favor of her own, an insistence that her story matters, that the collateral damage done by the protagonists of reality matters. Given the parallel setup between her and Theon in A Dance with Dragons, I wonder if this is something Barbary is supposed to work through. I wonder if she will <laughs> end up reconciling with her desire to be a Stark, like Theon is gradually doing, and she will allow the bones to pass through, you know, kind of making peace with having lost Brand and then lost her husband and on the way. The other possibility, is, as you were getting at, is that the reed Mormont's clever coalition down in the neck pulls an end run around Barbary somehow and gets the bones home on their own. And that is also a potent metaphor to think about, right? Like the literal remains of Stark rule are being brought home by the Dead Lord's vassals who are working to restore his children to power. That's great. That's emotional. But regardless of how they come home, I think the the primary importance of Ned Stark's bones will ultimately rest with those children, his children. It will undoubtedly be very cathartic for them to bury Ned down there with his generation next to the statues of his brother and sister he built in a breaking of tradition just to represent how much he loved them. This is a way of dealing with death in a way that leaves you feeling whole in life, which no one in Catalan 5 can seem to do. <laughs> Hopefully we'll see it at the end with Ned's bones, but it will still be bittersweet because they can't get Dad back and they can't erase the pain of losing him. For John in particular, I have to imagine this is going to cut both ways because he never got the chance to hear the truth about his parentage from Ned's lips. So all he can do is stare at the bones, imagine what might have been, and try to forgive. 
That's the end of the story of Ned Stark, once a protagonist in his own right, now a shadow on the wall for the next generation. They, like Brienne, have to wear the ill-fitting fragments of a world left behind for them before they even entered it. I think about uh, Orson Welles' movie, F for Fake, and it's all about, like, you know, uh, jumping around and having these different ideas. Who made this? What, is this? Is this artist a forger? Is this a real artist? Is the artist art world entirely bullshit and aren't, aren't forgers exposing that? And it's all just very kind of clever and glib, but it ends with this, like, this climax with this beautiful emotional moment where he goes to Notre Dame and says, this is, this is our greatest achievement, and there's no signature. It just, it belongs to us. And he says, all our songs will be silenced. But what of it? Go on singing. And that's what I think about, about like Ned Stark's bones coming home to Winterfell. It's the symbol of mortality, like inside a symbol of immortality. He's gone, but part of him gets to live forever. I think it's well, that's beautifully said. And I think, you know, the legacy of Ned Stark lives on in his children. And the legacy of us lives on in our own progeny, in our own, the people that we share share mm-hmm. our lives with. Go on singing, I think, is a great way of establishing that narrative. And I, I, I think about this, too, in terms of Catelyn Stark. I don't think that she's going to end the story as Lady Stoneheart. I certainly hope that's not her end point in the story. I, I hope that she dies as Catelyn of House Tully, of House Stark. And I think that her legacy can live on in her children, too. We start to see that, especially in Arya and Sansa's chapters, mm-hmm. as they break away from King's Lang, as they break away from their lives of captivity. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, we, we've talked about this before, about this, the the great thing that George does in Feast for Crows with uh, Cat, Catelyn being yeah. found in both Cat of the Canals in Arya's chapter and as in the in Bravos, as well as Elaine in, in Sansa's chapter. And so her legacy will live on, too. So even when she dies, and I do think that she absolutely will die at some point in the, in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring, hopefully her legacy, her non-Stoneheart legacy will live on in her children. Oh, yeah, it's, it's that kind of legacy is all we can hope for. You know, we're all songs in the end if we're lucky. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an excellent way to close this excellent episode of Clash of Kings, Catlin 5. Thank you so much to all of you guys for listening. If you guys have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics of ice and fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon, Merrifull Head Affair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, and Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Thank you so much to our High Lords and Ladies. We really appreciate your support, as always. Yeah, thank you folks very much. It uh, means a lot that you guys support us week in, month in, and month out. So, Join us next week as as we return to Karth for a Clash of Kings Daenerys 3 in which Danny tries to bribe the jerks who run this town 
then fails, and watches a magic show with Quaith instead. Oh, God. This, this chapter. I swear we will have nice things to say, folks. They will just, they will be mostly small details along the way. Lord knows we're not super huge fans of structural and Karth, you know, the overall story structure of Karth, but if you can't say anything nice, Jeff, don't say anything at all. I can say that we are getting to the House of the Undying. That is the next daily chapter. We are one step closer to the House of the Undying, folks. There's always something to celebrate. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for those of you who watched us. We will see you guys literally next week.